Good. Here we go. Three, two, live. Yeah. Boom. We're live. Gentlemen. Joe. Hi. Fred. Hey. Good to be here. Good to see you guys. What's happening? Not much. We're in sunny California. Yeah, it's uh, too close to the sun. A little bit. <laughs> yeah. Barbecued over the last week and a half. I've been hiding in a hotel for six days. How proper that we're here to talk about uh, the surviving apocalypse. the apocalypse. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Your book is Joe Beef Surviving the Apocalypse. Um, a cookbook for surviving the apocalypse? What is the, what's the purpose of the, uh, the title? Just a goof? We haven't written a book in years. You know, we, I don't think we really wanted to write a second book. Uh, when we started getting a bit of pressure to write a second one, we kind of you know, laid down the gauntlet to the editors and said, we're going to write what we want. Are you in or are you out? And they said, well, you know, show us a little bit of the framework of what this is going to be. I said, I want to talk, I mean, you know, cooking doesn't define me or Fred. It's not all that we do. Like, it's, you know, you see some people, they seem to like eat, live and breathe cooking. Um, I said, no, I'm into the outdoors. I'm into mushroom picking. I'm into fermentation of berries. I'm into, you know, canoeing. I know all about canoes. I love swimming in lakes. I want to talk about multiple subjects. I want to talk about the native Mohawks of Quebec. I want, you know, so I said, let us write a book about the multiple subjects of which we're into, you know. Hey, Joe, if, if we're not cooking, we're building first aid kits and like survival kits for real. Really? D yeah, oh, yeah, David yeah. goes to like LL Bean. He has a lifetime membership there, and I have an off-grid cabin up north, like north of Montreal, about an hour and a half. You can only get there by by boat. Uh, <laughs> it's eight kilometers from the the landing. Uh, you know, two thousand watts of solar power, completely off-grid. You can't even you can barely walk in because of the jagged cliffs all around it. And behind me is an old-growth forest that's protected federally. And I have a suture kit and a saline <laughs> in my car. Always? Oh, dude, yeah, his yeah, car's yeah. outfitted. Like, he's got shovels on the roof and uh, propane tanks on the roof. Yeah, and... Two years ago, I drove to Alaska, down south, Arizona, back home. Wow. 20,000 miles. <laughs> I grew up in Boston, and uh, I did stand-up in Montreal for the first time, I think, in like 1991 or something like that. And I remember thinking Boston was cold. Until I, I went to Montreal, and I went, oh, this is a different thing. This is uh, a whole we different had it level last of year, cold. too. We had a polar vortex last year come roaring through. I think all the pipes blew in all the restaurants. I'm sure. Yeah. Like yeah. January 2nd, you know? But what I was going to say is, do you think that living in such an extreme environment, a beautiful city, amazing city, but it's an incredibly harsh environment in the winter, do you think that makes you more, uh, more cognizant? It's always the need for survival. It's always in the back of my head. I have three daughters. Like uh, it's always in the back of my head. They said, "This is incredibly cold. If the power goes out for forty-eight hours, I have to start a plan B. Where am I bringing my babies? Yeah. What are we going to eat? Where are we going?" Yeah. Even our city over the last couple of years have been talking about a complete ban of fireplaces and wood-burning stoves inside of homes, condominiums, and, ho and houses. The, the laws governing wood-burning in the city of Montreal are stricter than the ones in California. Uh, and we and die, for, man. If, if it's cold, me, we die. I go, this yeah. is irresponsible you know, yeah. by, by the government to do this. I said, okay, make sure we don't use them, but let's all have them just in case. Same goes yeah. for Because if the, if the like grid goes here, down, right? what are they worried about it for? Are they worried about the air, air pollution? Particle air emission. Particulates? Yeah, yeah. That's correct. 
man, but it smells good. Like uh, mm. a nice wood burning stove like smells bagels? amazing. <laughs> Yeah, that, you, this affects everybody. This affects restaurants and grilling food. This affects yeah. barbecue. This affects, you know, traditional bagel stores. Traditional bagel stores cook with wood? Is that why you said that? Yeah, right. of yeah. course. Really? Of Always? course. You go into Myland, St. Vieter Bagel, Fairmount Bagel, all the other ones, you, you smell it. It's a massive really? part of our yeah. culture as well. You have to understand that food-wise, the province of Quebec, the city of Quebec City and Montreal – these are the first places populated in North America. This is, you know, the Europeans, to, to get to anywhere in North America, came through Quebec first, New York afterwards. Uh, the food culture in Quebec is over 400 years old. You can't say that about, you well, know. Over 1,000 years old, you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, wow, and but, wood, wood, wood is detrimental to that. If it wasn't for burning wood, and I'm not saying we should do it for historical purpose, but, like, man, like, if we run out of gas... It, there's still wood. For and then they're going to come and give you a ticket, you yeah. know, two grand because you're, you're having a fire. A few years ago, like about a, a decade ago, we had this crazy ice storm in Quebec. Uh, you know, the perfect storm of rain and then cold and then rain and then cold. All the power lines went All out. All the pylons Yeah, crashed. everything got thick with ice, right? Yeah, for two weeks. Yeah, two weeks. There's a baby boom right after that because people stayed home, <laughs> no television and no heat and uh, we procreated and there was a true... Baby boom, nine months later, there was a wow. ton of new kids born. That's hilarious. Yeah, but you know the, the deep freeze, it also like cleans the city in the winter. So from your perspective, if the shit hits the fan, they come and see us. Because it, it's a pretty good city to survive anything, you know? It's a pretty neat place because the winter just like sanitizes everything. You start again every year, you right. know? Yeah, as opposed so, to L.A. where you never really... Get that. But you can't get the into, full clean down. Yeah. Never. No, you it's never a long clean. haul. Yeah, you do like a whore's bath. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you just get it like a, you're in a restroom somewhere with paper towels that you wet down and sort of get your underarms or whatever. <laughs> That's what L.A. is. The wet towelettes. Yes, yes. So you just wanted to write a book that kind of covers all of your interests, not just with food, but one of the things that I really enjoyed about, there was an episode that you guys did of... Uh, Anthony Bourdain's show where you were ice fishing um, and you had a, one of those ice fishing huts and you, you guys know, cooked. You know, Tony told you it's notorious on the show that they never caught fish. Yeah. And whenever he had a gun, he never hit anything. So we knew that and we knew that there was not a pike and there was not a walleye that was going to bite. So we're like, okay, option A, we sit there and we like take some fake fish and we fry it up in cornflakes and shortening in a hollow cabin or we just went like Joe Beef Crazy and we brought all the old cookbooks we had, all the spirits, like Cuban cigars, all the copperware, all the stuff. And we made a menu from an old Lyonnais restaurant, Paul Bocuse, that he did a show at after. And he, he knew nothing about that day. Eh? And we just went from fishing after he asked us about like uh, strippers in Quebec and like uh, just a few funny banter. And it was, we just went in. It was like magical. It's a, it was seriously a tenth a tenth. Of the size of this room here. Yeah, it was a tiny, tiny little yeah. shack. And he tapped out that day. Yeah? Yeah, he was having a good time. And uh, <laughs> we hit the, we, we brought some fine wines and fine spirits some some really rare oddities, some old chartreuse and stuff like yeah. that that Fred had lying around. And, and Tony was, was there you funny. Guys are. It's up on the screen right there. He let it go a bit, you know. Uh, he just nice... he calmed down and enjoyed us and let us do our thing. I'm a bit fatter, eh? Oh, God. <laughs> Uh, that was in the wine drinking days too, right? Yeah, correct. 
Look at that. God, that looks good. Is that foie and some sort of mashed potatoes or something? Yeah, that's uh, wild rabbit. It's a French recipe. It's called uh, hair à la royale, where you um, you cook the hair for a long time, and uh, hair, yeah, <laughs> and you serve it with truffles, and, and you take you keep the blood. This hair is snared, so it's still full of blood, and you keep the blood, and at the end, you thicken the sauce with the blood. Whoa. Oh, it's very good. And I bet you, you know, it's funny. I bet you it fits all the principles of nutrition now, you know? Mm. It's like blood and all the organ meats and all right. the Same with cheese. Look, this so is like see, pure cheese probiotics right there. Isn't that, that is interesting, right? That no one thought of that until recently, that that was what it was. That people just thought of it as cheese. And now people think of it as there's live cultures on it and organ meat is much healthier for you. And people are so much more aware and of that. And look at the, the cheese thing, too. It's like... Now, they, a lot of the probiotic makers are doing, like, uh, lipo deliveries. They coat it in fat, so it resists the stomach acid, right? But that's fat. Mm. Probiotic from cheese is covered in fat. You eat right. it after your dinner. It lives through you. And, and it all in a perfect world, it comes from right around your house, right? So you eat a cheese, and the probiotics are the same one that you're going to encounter later. So you kind of get immunized in a way. Yeah. That's the benefit. That's what true local is. Right, right, yeah. Is there's a benefit to eating cheese after a meal? Yeah, sure. It is when it's a very pungent, uh, advanced, alive raw cheese. It'll be seen ultimately as a non-alcoholic digestive. What is a digestive? To 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 help stimulate digestion. Ah, no kidding. Correct. So it's almost like an enzyme. Like yeah, a, like a probiotic. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. But mostly now they're they're figuring this out that. The problem of the low-fat diet and the, you know, like brown rice and chicken breast, you know, the bodybuilder diet, nothing triggers your fullness because they realize that fat actually makes you full quite fast, right? right. So if you eat a bit of cheese, you're done. You tap out after. You don't mm. eat like a full plate of cheese or layer it on a hamburger, but just a little bit of cheese after just cuts you off and then you have spirits and... Cigars are not that healthy, but... <laughs> yeah, I've been talking about that with a lot of nutrition experts where they say that your body, when it eats a lot of carbohydrates, you can consume carbohydrates far past what you actually need, whereas if you're just eating a lot of fat and protein, your body tends to regulate itself much better. Satiate, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Now, you guys, uh, how long have you been in Montreal? And I have to tell you, and I've said it before... If I had to say my all-time favorite restaurant, I think Joe Beef's my all-time favorite restaurant. I don't like to say my all-time number because there's a lot of great restaurants in this world. But damn, if I had to choose one, I think I might choose you guys. Yeah, you're very kind, but we have to take you out to other places to change your mind. Uh, I don't think you got to, man. You guys are the first. It's kind of if you're a horse lover, turn your head, plug your ears. You guys are the first people that ever served me horse, and I was like, what? When you brought over a horse, uh, it was a. Horse, horse tenderloin. And I was like, what the fuck? You guys are eating horse up here? And horse tartare. But like, it's a stigma. Mm. You yeah. know, it's a, a cow, an elk, a bison, a deer, mm -hmm. a yeah. horse. It's a four-legged animal. And, yes. you know, what if I put... If I put a bison tenderloin on this and serve you a, a beef tenderloin and a cow tenderloin and a deer tenderloin, it's, at the end of the day, it's you know it just has a couple of degrees of separation from the other. It's all flesh, really. And it, oh. it's it's very subjective that we base or nutritional choices on the, how pretty or how cute an animal is. You know, it doesn't make sense. You know, and we're lucky now we're able to choose what we eat. Right. You know, like it wasn't like that a hundred years ago. You know, the purpose of the food guide until like 40 years ago was to make sure you had enough calories. Now we're in an age of restriction. So you, we say like, I don't want horse. I 
prefer deer or I prefer veal or I had chicken yesterday. I can't have twice in a row. Like all this is a bit of fluff what we do in a way because we're so fortunate to have enough food to decide. My friend Remy Warren was on a backpacking uh, uh, horseback elk hunt and uh, one of the horses fell down and broke its leg and they had to make a decision. They were deep in the backcountry and they had to shoot it. And uh, it was just wasn't going to get out of there. And after they shot it, he decided that really this is it sound was going to go to waste. So they took the back straps off and they, they cooked it and ate it. And, they, and he, but he said there, it was a really weird moment where like this is an animal that was like everybody's petting it. And it was you were, you know, you're riding it. And it just it was a working animal, but it was an animal that you loved. And then all of a sudden it's down and you have to kill it. And he's like, well, it's going to go to waste. He said it just felt wrong. To let it go to waste, so they, they cut the back straps off of it. You know, the reason I think we don't eat horse culturally is really based ultimately on the battle of wolf between Montcalm on the plains of Quebec City. Uh, you know, there, that was a decisive battle in North American history. Whereas if the French had won that battle, everybody in North America ultimately would be speaking French. Mm. You know, they didn't win that battle. So British rule imposed. So in England, you didn't eat horse by royal decree. But in f the French ate horse. The Belgians eat horse. The Germans eat horse. You see? So, oh, that's, so that's what it yeah, is. Yeah, it's huh? very old history. You uh, know, it was mining. It was a mining. It's in an Anglophone world to eat horse. Mm. And in and, and all the mining countries, uh, half my family is from Belgium, and it's traditional there because they bring the horse in the mine. The horse, you know, it's sad for a horse to live in the mine in the dark, but... They wouldn't bring it out when he was old, you know. They would just eat the horse. Well, Most cultures eat Turkish eat horse, you know. Well, it was a necessity. I mean, yeah. you, you couldn't pick and choose back when all this was instituted. We're, we're very limited in the proteins that we eat, especially in North America. Quebec less so. You know, Quebec is a very open-minded dining public, very advanced dining public, very old dining public, and, of course, Latin, French dining public. The amount of proteins that are served in a Montreal restaurant are yeah, numerous compared to, let's say, even when I go to Manhattan. If me and you and Fred are in Manhattan tomorrow night, say, let's go have rabbit with mustard sauce, it's going to be a tough sell. We're, we're going we're to really struggle to find rabbit mustard sauce. Mm. We're going to struggle even to find, uh, you know, let's go have a couple slices of liver tonight with onions. It's going to be very difficult to sell in New York City. Really. Like, yeah. Lamb neck, you know, lamb Kidneys. liver. Deer is a hard, tall order, you know. Yeah. Ultimately, Manhattan or America eats a limited scope of proteins, beef, chicken, so forth. Whereas, you know, French culture, Quebec, you know, we have all the proteins. I have young dining clientele that have no problem eating kidneys medium rare, uh, liver, lamb liver, deer neck, deer heart tartare. It's not a thing. Like, it's not what other restaurant people are it's eating. Just it's just part of the registry, you know. Little girls, like your daughters, were raised eating, you know, the food that their dad hunts mm. and the food that their parents buy. Uh, so, some people of lesser means eat pork liver, raised on it. So when they see liver on the restaurant, cute little, you know, 19-year-old girls that are about to go out to the club later will have a slice of liver. You won't see that in New York City. Are you allowed to sell venison here that you hunt? No, no. not that you hunt. You, okay. you have to buy farm-raised stuff. And oddly enough, most of it's from New Zealand. Most of the stuff that we're yeah. getting here in the United States is from New Zealand. And if they call it venison, it's most likely some sort of stag or, you know, and the elk that we get if we buy elk at a restaurant. It's, yeah. it's all from New Zealand. Well, when so you, you can't harvest it. When, no. you, 
when you do a kill, you can put it in your freezer? And, yes. Okay, perfect. Yeah, well, all I have two freezers back here. Um, all of um, the elk that I get, I get from myself that I hunt, and I give it to a lot of my friends, and I make sausages for my friends, and I send, I, you know, but that's the only way they're going to get it unless they go out and get it themselves. There's not a place in Los Angeles where you can go buy elk meat. Yeah. In, New- in Newfoundland, uh, they're, they're allowed to, hunters are allowed to sell moose back to the restaurants. Really? Yeah, moose were introduced onto the island of Newfoundland from Maine. And there was no natural predators on Newfoundland, ah. so the mo- and it's a perfect environment for them. So they just propagated. So and that's they why they they drive slow there, man. Oh, when we yeah. shot with Tony, they drove slow. Like we drove for hours, like full days to go, like three hundred miles because you can't drive fast because of the mooses. So you can have a restaurant, like in the hotel we stayed. The restaurant had a permit to buy moose. So they would make like moose curry and moose sausages. But like a days in kind of vibe. Like, yeah, well, not yeah. a great restaurant. Right. Like a hotel, uh, you know, a hotel restaurant serving wild moose burgers. But it's pretty cool that they do that. That is cool. But if they did that everywhere else, then we're just reinventing the wheel, you know. With, well, like, we're going back to market hunting, which is what almost wiped out almost all of the animals in this country anyway. Some chefs in Quebec would like to bring that back. And I, you know, I said, listen, we can barely manage our roads, our infrastructure. We can barely manage like our... And that's the risk of foraging too. Like eventually, you know, like people go for mushrooms. It's like you heard about the fights between the mushroom pickers in Oregon and stuff like that. Where No. Ah, like, oh, fuck. Like the... The people who harvest clams too, eh? That like between the communities, there's huge fights for territories, and they'd hijack like trucks of abalone at night. And, and yeah, uh, like, gooey duck, the giant king clam. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've I've heard stories of uh, a guy on a, in his econoline van with 500 pounds of gooey duck going to the Victoria Airport to send them to Japan, get hijacked on the highway at night, and they steal the clams because they're worth a fortune in japan and same for mushroom patches matsutake mushrooms or as well another this famous white it's called a pine mushroom and in japan the matsutake mushroom the closer the shape of the mushroom to a penis the more expensive it is you know (laughs) so they like they'd actually hijack people on their way to like the patch and like undress them and make them turn around so they can never find the place again Wow. Yeah, it's competitive. Morel mushrooms, you look at a morel mushroom, it's, uh, you know, how much, Fred? For Very it? expensive. 44 bucks a kilo in yeah. Montreal. Dave, and can you pull, yeah. this, pull this a little closer Absolutely. to your face? Try to, try to, just try to keep it about a fist from your face. Yeah, the uh, morel mushrooms, I buy them uh, online. They're very expensive. I buy them dried, and, but yeah. they're so delicious. I mean, people who don't like mushrooms, like one of my daughters does not like mushrooms, but she loves morels. It's my favorite. It's a yeah, number one mushroom. so good with salt, with garlic salt and, fr- and sautéed in butter. They're sensational. Great mushroom. Yeah, so it's a strange a, flavor. One of our favorite, re- there's a great recipe for that in the book is like you poach chicken legs. Right, until they're ready. And then in the, the broth, very little broth, you know, you strain the broth, you add cream and saute morel mushrooms in there and a little bit of sherry wine, any of oxidized wine, and you just add the legs in there and you let, you let that simmer. Man, that's good. We have it's, a picture in the book of some morel mushrooms of the size of these water bottles. Wow. We've had morel mushrooms that are about the size of my hand. You can stuff like half a chicken leg inside of them and serve one stuffed morel mushroom in broth for one customer. It's brilliant. Wow. Aren't they, they're a strange mushroom, right, where they, they pop up after burns. Yeah, and they're also a spring mushroom, which is weird, because most of the other mushrooms are or later cool, on damp, fall, fall damp, right? And morel is, like, literally quite quick after the snow. That's the first mushroom that appears in the forest, so it's very different than all the others. Are they commercially cultivated? 
they they could be, but not. I've never seen it. In my career. I, I tried growing mushrooms. We tried everything at the restaurant. I tried growing mushrooms, and like you get everything but the mushroom you inoculate. You know, it's very difficult to keep the proper conditions and stuff. That's why I'm not against the fact that they're expensive. You know, it's a good way to regulate a market mm. price. You know, it's like. Yeah, you know, bluefin tuna is going extinct, but just make it three times the price. It's going to regulate the market, you know? I guess. I wish there was a way to reintroduce bluefin to the wild. It just seems like the appetite that people have for those things is just untenable. Give you a look at any given night in a city like Manhattan, how much red tuna is sold on the island of Manhattan oh. any given night of the year. It's it's. It's scary. Yeah, I almost yeah. feel like it's like killing the last giraffe in a herd, you know, like like fishing a giant tuna like that. It's it's and again, you know, they they're big, they're feisty, they're majestic. So that shouldn't guide my choice, my decision and to protect them, but like I, I that's heartbreaking. Well, the problem is there's complete lack of regulation in the open waters when these guys have these enormous ships filled with huge nets and they just drag them across the ocean floor and capture everything. Or bycatch. Yeah. You know, that's the biggest what joke. It's like they call it bycatch. So you didn't set off the fish for tuna, but that's with kind of bit, mm-hmm. you know, like, right. yeah, <laughs> come on. You know, you go fishing for what to catch a bluefin tuna in the first place, you know, place. Oh, so they're 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 pretending they're not fishing for it. Is that what you're saying? Allegedly. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know that whole thing with Japanese whalers. They they found a way to work around it, and the way the work research around it is boats. science research boats. So they, these science research where we're going to do research on these whales that we kill, and then they chop them up and sell them. And Sea Shepherd has been tra- tracking that down, and they they you know hover over them, take photographs of it, and report them, and you know it's it's ugly business. Yeah, Wild protein eat. is ugly business. Yeah, We've worked hard at the restaurant to ultimately avoid it, to be more seafood, sustainable seafood focused. You mm-hmm. know, the oyster is a great thing to eat. We should eat more oysters. Right. We should eat more clams. Florida, oddly, is an amazing sustainable seafood scene. You know, just the work that they do with the, uh, the, the Florida stone crab, right? You know that every year they just harvest like the left arm. And they, really? put, they put the crab back. And the next year, it's the right arm. And they put the crab back. Really? Yeah, it's a brilliant fishing industry. You that know? is small. They don't they're... kill the animal. The, the, the claw grows back. Right. And it's, uh, it's absolutely And they all fit brilliant. nicely on the plate, all side by side. So. I don't like that you're telling me something good about Florida. <laughs> <laughs> they have a great shrimping scene, a great yeah, – they're, they're actually leaders in sustainable seafood. Well, the seafood and fishing is such a gigantic part of their economy. It makes sense that they would do that. That's a smart thing. Yeah. Did, I mean, it, grouper fishing down there is a giant, giant part of their, their there's industry. There's a, a good book that was published a few years ago, The Big Oyster, I think, Mark Kolansky. He wrote a book, a book the history about of the oyster. Yeah, the New York and the history of the oyster. That's and it's incredible. Super interesting because his, his his thing was like, you know, we try to portray our history as like glorious, and we herded bisons before for protein, and that's how we started our, like modern farming. But in fact, we probably farmed oysters and snails and clams because they don't move, and they're the most prolific and the most. <clears throat> Abundant source of protein. Kurlansky, in that book, Kurlansky brings up a premise, and I'm loosely interpreting it now because I read this book a few years ago, but think of this for a second, right? The island of Manhattan uh, is a perfect, all the rivers around it, all the water systems around it, is actually one of the greater oyster situations on the Atlantic East Coast, right? 
The reason that the population exploded in Manhattan at the, in the early days was that any person could literally get off a boat, walk onto the island of, of Manhattan, homeless, broke, and f sleep in an alley, and walk down to the river and pick five oysters. A small oyster is five grams of protein, right? A medium oyster's got 10 grams of protein. So a completely destitute person could just eat six oysters a day, you know, three oysters, and live again another day to find a job. So the population ultimately, you know, New York City and its population was based on this readily supply, this huge supply of oysters. Wow. Yeah. That's there crazy. was a free, available source of protein that, that will make you live another 24 hours. So if it takes you three days to find a job, four days to find a job, 20 days to find a job, you're not going to die because there's oysters. Look at this. And yeah, and they they is they that, found oysters. What is this from Harlem River oh, oysters? This is incredible. Yeah, yeah. there there's an actual island that they thought were like geo geological formation that are made of oyster shells. This um, layers and layers of oyster shells. The article that Jamie put up is from Thrillist. Is that what it's from? Yeah. Pull up to the top so I can tell people yeah. the art the name of it is. Um, why oysters are ridiculously important to the history of New York City. And uh, it's just showing all these ancient photos of mounds of oyster shells. And there's an amazing program today. You know some of the areas, uh, uh, there's a, they take these giant cages. One oyster, if I'm correct, one oyster filters four metric tons of water per day. From what I understand, I might be wrong with my math. So take this, for instance, you know, a cage, a caged box of thousands of oysters. There it is. There's there it the is. mask. A single oyster can filter about 30 to 50 gallons of water yeah. every day. <laughs> little, little Loose math. <laughs> and uh, in case Joby you haven't digits. noticed, New York's waterways aren't exactly the cleanest. The folks behind the Billion Oyster Project are trying to change that by recycling shells from the part partnering restaurants and getting them back in the water to build oyster reefs. The goal is to add a billion oysters to the water by 2035. So far, they've restored one point Oh, one acre. 1.5 <laughs> acres of reefs. What? Don't say 1.05. <laughs> Bitch, you, you got an acre. Oh, that's you just adding those extra two numbers. 1.05 acres of reefs and count 11.5 million newly grown oysters. But the and oyster it, will clarify the water. It'll make mm. a murky river clear again. Wow. But yeah. does that affect the taste of the oyster? They or? don't eat those oysters. I think those are pulled back into landfill after or mulched into gardens. Or, or for the shells farming. again to reput oh. for more reefs. But the oyster is interesting. It doesn't move, right? right. An oyster, it opens its Look shells to, to feed. Showing how they do it. This is incredible. And the oyster, you know that the oyster has a, it will change gender according to the density of the population. So it'll yes. go from male to female in order to balance the See, population. Look at that water. That's incredible. We're watching a video where the, what is it? The oyster recovery, yeah, it what does like it say? A, it was a time lapse of it. Oh, sorry. So it's a time lapse, but it said, what, what does it say it was from? Moisture fil filtration. Right, but there was a, a watermark on the video uh, there in the corner. It was showing. Oyster was, recovery yeah. partnership. Oyster recovery partnership. Yeah, so the watermark um, is, so what they do is they have this horrible green water. They chuck these oysters in and it turns it completely clear. That's amazing. I did not know that. I, I did know that they used to uh, eat lobsters, and they thought of lobsters as poor people food. Because sure. Because yeah. get them out of the river. The, yeah, the rich kids prisoners. Baloney. Yeah, in, uh, in, in New Brunswick, they used to um, harvest the lobsters to feed to the prisoners and <laughs> keep the shells as fertilizer. Wow. You Jefferson know? was one of the first presidents to bring the lobster into the White House because it was seen as a uh, servant's food. 
When did it switch? Jefferson. So when he started doing that, that's when people realized it was so delicious? No, well, that's where the lobster spaghetti at Joe Beef, we changed the whole thing. The lobster spaghetti at <laughs> Joe Beef is insane. That lobster spaghetti, that's, uh, that's off the charts. You know, also the child labor laws were installed primarily because of the kids that used to work in oyster shucking plants. Really? Yeah. Yeah. We had a, one of our best friends, if not our best friend, passed away like six months ago, John Bill. Um, he was a great chucker. He helped us at the bar, but he's like deep into sustainability and history of oysters and everything. And he was like the source for oysters for everything. He wrote a beautiful book. Yeah. Cool. I will send you a copy. It's an incredible book. They're a good food for vegans to consider too because they're more primitive than most plants. Yeah, from most no, mollusks. Are, John used to call them ocean cupcakes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, they're delicious. It's a great source of protein, but it's also they don't have any nerve endings. They're not, they're not feeling anything. Well, it's a sea vegetable. Yeah, it basically yeah. is. Yeah. We, we have an issue, or some people, not myself, but some people have an issue with things that are capable of moving. Yeah, like for whatever reason, we just decide that don't eat that. But if you want to talk about something sustainable, like mollusks and seafood, yeah. I mean, they can be commercially farmed. They, they actually do have a positive impact, as you're describing, uh, on the environment. Incredible source of protein as well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and uh, really uh, like a complete source of protein, not like a very bioavailable source, unlike a lot of vegetable proteins. So maybe we should do a protein powder out of dried oysters. Just eat some oysters, <laughs> clam <laughs> protein. Yeah. Well, how would you no, do totally. that? How'd you Dry get so ripped? Clam protein, bro. I mean, a lot of people are eating cricket protein. If you guys yeah. ever serve any insect dishes, uh, no, but not, I'm not, not opposed knowingly. to it. Well, one of the things. I got a letter last knowingly. week that someone found a, a bug in their salad and their. But you know, upset. sometimes the oh. people are a bit. They want the cake and they want to eat it too because they people want organic. Right. And we support that. We love that. But um, Occasionally you get an ant or, in there. Yeah. Well, yeah organic well, is no pesticide. Right. So. That's okay. Bugs aren't bad. It's like the idea of bugs being – like roaches are bad, okay? Most other bugs are not that big of a deal. Yeah. You know? and it's like quite – you know, if we're, serve, if we're serving 100 people a day and maybe, you know, that arguably being 40 salads – you know, it's some kind of crazy work to really look at both sides of each leaf. We yeah. try our best, right? You know, but you know, one one will get past us every year. I think you're better off. The people that that are freaking out about bugs, you don't want them coming in there. Just let them, just give them their money back and get the fuck out of here. Yeah, just I agree with that. That's my out. policy. <laughs> but when I was in Mexico, they uh, we checked into this resort and they had a bowl of fried crickets. In the hotel, like like they they had some sort of a flavor to them. They added some flavor to yeah. Them. Rene Redzepi in Noma, arguably one of the world's best restaurants, is obsessed with serving ants. Really <laughs> loves them. Why lemony ants? fresh? I don't know. I think I think they're crunchy. They're delicious. Uh, you know, he thinks they're they're fine. Uh, you know, of course, and he's doing this wonderful Nordic cuisine. And uh, there's ants, and when when they but forage vegetables and they forage mushrooms, and you know there's also ants. So why not forage those too? And it's a homework they do for the rest of us. You know, it starts. They're, they're doing the right thing. You know, people pay a lot of money, fly there to go eat there. But you know, he's doing some good legwork on how to prepare them, how to raise them, how to. You know, I'm not saying his food is based on that, but. I'm right. happy that somebody did that part of the research. And he'll bring the point up, and that'll, you know, ultimately by osmosis, y other younger chefs will try to do that. Mm. And it'll, it'll normalize it a little bit more. So, you know, expect ants 
at Nordic restaurants. Interesting. So this is the new trend. Get ahead of it, folks. <laughs> you heard him, Los Angeles. I know you trendy fucks are out there thinking about what's coming. <laughs> <laughs> um, crickets are a weird one. Like crickets seem to be like universally accepted. Like cricket protein. You see a lot of cricket yeah. protein bars. You don't see too many other insects being like commercially uh, harvested. David and I were in New York uh, for Anthony's uh, memory thing, memorial thing, and we walked in the Bowery. And, you know, middle of the afternoon, hot sun. Oh, this is a good you know. one. And there's like a little store, no refrigeration, and there's buckets of clams. And, you know, like mesh bags, like you put onions in. There's a big mm-hmm. mesh bag in a bin, and it's full of giant bullfrogs. Like looking up at us. Like a hundred little bullfrogs. But like lined up tiny in a heads. box, like oranges in a box. Like one, two, three, four, and five. And they're alive. Yeah. And they're little eyes just looking up like this. Whoa. And I, I was like, sure, we have frogs in the book, but that was... So hang on. Fred and I have been cooking for years. Like, you know, 25 years, arguably, not, if not more. I've processed We're processed every animal oriented. in French cooking. Okay. So of course, we're, we, keep, we just look at the frogs. We don't say anything to each other. We keep on walking. <laughs> And I go, hang on a sec, Fred, walk me through this. He goes, how exactly does this work? I know how to do a rabbit. I know how to do a hare. I know how to do a duck. I know how to do any fish, any seafood, lobster. So you get no a case of frog in the kitchen. What's your first move? Right now. What's our first move? So we take the live frog. Do I put it on the cutting board? Do I hack its legs off? And what do I do with the 60% remaining of the frog? This, ta- that's what I'm worried broth. about. <laughs> yeah. Is it, is it ground? Does it end up in dumplings? Where is that other part of the frog going? Is it soup? Is it broth? You know, that's an amphibian. Right. It was fascinating. Did you experiment? No. We no, died. no, no. I'm mortified. And after that, we went to Tony's Memorial. It was in a, a Chinese restaurant. And I was just like, I couldn't eat. Because by default, everything had like frog in it in my head. So you were freaking out just because they were alive, staring up at you? No, because I know that the legs are delicious. Right. I know that, you know, if I chop the legs off and I peel the skin and I dredge them in flour and I fry them and I serve them with garlic cream, that they're delicious. They're as delicious as chicken wings. What I'm worried about is the frog is so big and, you know, the the discarded part of the frog is the size of a, a softball. Right. So... Yeah, it's like eating the stem of the apple and leaving the apple. In cooking, mm. we don't throw stuff out. Right. Right. So I want to know what happens to that part in Chinese cookery or French cookery. Well, of- the, the place that you guys were at was a Chinese market? Yeah, it was one of those hole-in-the-door kind of like mm-hmm. supplier. And it was like I we got it. There were clams. There were wink periwinkles. There were like all... I just, I've never and, processed frogs in my career, really. You know, when I've gotten fresh frogs, I was working in France, and it was just the frog's legs in a, in a, in a basket. But I'm, even then, I would wonder, in France, where does that other part go? I know. This is a very disturbing. What seems like there's got to be an answer to this. Maybe. I don't know. You would be the people that I would call. <laughs> I'm thinking <laughs> That's the problem. wonton stuffing. <laughs> right. Like Maybe. some sort of boiled and ground. I'm hoping they're discarded. I just Googled it, and the video is... Graphic. Let it go. Let's do it. <laughs> Let it roll. I can't. I'm not gonna put it up on YouTube. Okay, we'll put it, it up for us. There, yeah. Put it up for us so we can, we can see it. <laughs> Here we go. Okay. Oh, oh no. They don't even bother killing them first. They just <laughs> do it on the fly. So, so far, so far cut the legs off. Off of the So head. far, that's exactly oh, how I presume. Squeeze. Okay. Mm. So they squeeze it out. Once they cut the head off, they they squeeze it out like a 
what would you describe that like? They're peeling it now. Right. So then the they squeeze body, the they squeeze yeah. the innards out. Like, yeah. like it, through the neck cavity. Like the last of toothpaste. Yes, yeah, that's a good go. way to describe it. Yeah. Okay, so then they, uh, they take it. Now it looks like a man because it's headless. It's like a headless man. It's, it's like one of those mannequins that you, you use to draw bodies there. Yeah. I, I would po- at what point do you put the batteries to the hind legs? Batteries? <laughs> you know, in like yeah. high school. Oh, right. You, you put the little right. battery in the back leg. No, we used to, to put cigarettes them. in them, in their so mouths. He's, he's chopping them up. It seems like he's leaving the bones on. Is that what he's doing? Yeah. Okay. So you know what? It's really great that we're watching this because I'm a lot less horrified by the whole prospect of it. So he's just hacking it up, bones intact, and then and, and chucking it into uh, a basket. So it doesn't look like they're missing much other than the guts. So it seems like the innards, and then they seem to be boiling all that stuff. And okay, so they put it in a soup with the bones intact, and you just sort of. Um, I need that. I need. Yeah, that. it's funny. If I had to make a dish with that, I'd make the soup with day lilies inside. Water lilies, I mean. Mm, right. <laughs> with lily pad like soup with frog. Yeah. What is, have you ever and tried like, anything with lily No. Pad? no with tapioca leaves look like lily pads, right? And those are hot right now in cooking. Do you guys try to do that? Like add some of the ingredients of the native environments of the yeah. animals? Yeah. One of the yeah. best tricks to cooking. One of the best tricks to cooking. When you, a chef told me this a long time ago in France. He goes, well, chef, what should I cook the lamb with? He goes, it's easy. What would it eat? If you had a lamb, what would be growing around it? Mm. And automatically, you just scroll down. If I had a lamb and, a, and an acre of land, what would be around it? There would be turnips. There would be carrots. There would be onions. There would be apples. There would be pears. There would be thyme. There would be basil. There would be garlic. There would be... So just In there you go. You traditional, just more idyllic environment. Yeah. Mm. The problem is, is when you have lobster and you cook it with mangoes, right? Where lobster is, where, where it comes from, there's no mangoes. So the recipe doesn't make sense. It might right. be delicious, but it's dumb. But butter... Lobster and butter, they go together. Lobster, butter, potatoes, what else grows there? Onions, uh, yeah, you, you know, go to Prince Edward, Prince Edward Island, okay, small island in the Gulf. One of the provinces of, of Canada, we have cows, so potatoes, and lobster. The region. The three resources. Not, yeah. the, not the actual environment. If you well, have so a you, rabbit, if you have a rabbit in your backyard, or you, you know. In you, the line of sight. Right, I what, see. what can you see there? Oh. Rabbit with apples and carrots makes sense. Right. That right? does make sense. Yeah. But, but what if lobster and mango is fucking delicious? Yeah, but it, then, it, you know. It's for other people to do. We not, have our principles. It's oh. academically incorrect. Oh, academically incorrect. That's fascinating. One of my favorite pizzas, don't get disgusted at me, don't hate me, pineapple and anchovy. Uh, pineapple and anchovy? That's right. Pineapple and ham is no, out no, no. there. Pineapple and anchovy. It's goddamn delicious. I fucking love it. I don't care what you say. Who does that, though? That's like the, the, you'd invented that. I might have. That's good. <laughs> no, I want to try, I I try frog soup with <laughs> lily pads and pineapple and anchovy pizza. I go pizza. hard with both. Hard with the pineapple and hard with the anchovy. Do you want to write a book three with us? No. Well, I can't, <laughs> I can't Cooking cook. with Joe? I'm good at elk steaks and uh, I know how to order pineapple and anchovy pizza. I have to say that when I see your, uh, the picture you post of your uh, meat cooking. Not bad. It's always on point. Thank you very much. Because there's a lot of hunters that post up pictures of their dinner and it's not because in like you can take pictures and they'll look beautiful with like of anything. It's not the quality of the picture, but the food is a little bit. Mm. Yeah, some hunters don't know how to cook. We have a lot of hunters in Quebec, and sometimes you know the hunter will bring by the. Because I shot this beautiful moose, David. It was uh, 
2,000 pounds or 1,500 pounds, and he shows me a picture on his phone, and then he brings me a jar of the spaghetti sauce he made out of the mousse. I'm like, really? That's what you, you like? You you shot a majestic moose in the forest, and you made spaghetti sauce with it. And like, I put kiwi in mm. it because it tenderizes the meat. <laughs> well, listen, spaghetti sauce with ground moose is delicious. Yeah, I'll give you a tip. You gotta have, you gotta have a. Yeah, I eat everything. I eat the whole thing, right? I mean, I'll, I I I know how to make the roasts, and I use the ground for a bunch of different things, and. Um, I, I just think that if you if you do it properly or if you if you want to handle it properly, you've really got to read up on how to cook wild game as opposed to how to cook anything else. There's a very low fat content. It's a tricky kind of meat to cook. There's a, a tool. It's called a lardoire in French. It's like a big needle with a swivel tip. And what you do is you cut long strips of fat and you poke them through the meat. And oh, and you as, inject it? Yeah, you don't inject. You put like, like long, threading it. You're uh. threading your piece of meat, like the, the loins or the fat, the, the back straps. Mm. It's, it tends to be leaner. So you put long strips of pork fat inside and you cook it slowly enough that the pork fat will melt inside. So in every bite, you'll have a little bit of fat. It's a that neat sounds, thing. It's an old French cooking trick. Yeah. That sounds sensational. Or what we do, actually, like for the wild rabbit, which is extremely dry... We'll put uh, a veal foot with the skin, so that'll give off the collagen, and we'll put a slice of pork belly with it. That'll give off the fat. When are you guys going back to Montreal? Tomorrow. Tomorrow. Yeah. If I, I can't give you meat, right? It wouldn't. No, it couldn't get through the border. Wouldn't work. Damn. Not, not this way. The other way works. Yes, but, uh, it works if you hunt it and bring yeah. it through. I've brought it. I've brought meat back, but uh, damn, I'd like to give you guys something. See what you do with it. Yeah, it's a lot of things. It's our favorite meat, but, you know, it would be sooner be caught with bricks of hashish than, than <laughs> venison as restaurant right. owners. You know, like, like you, yeah, we'd be in cannot, you cannot have any wild game in your restaurant. Even if you it's know? just for your own personal consumption? No. Really? No. Yeah, well, sturgeon, too, is a problem in, uh, in Quebec. If caviar, you know, we have a lot of sturgeon in the Gulf of St. Lawrence. The laws are, ri- like, lights out ridiculous. Mm. If you get caught with like a gram of caviar in your boat, you don't have a license. They'll freeze your bank accounts and seize your house, kind of thing. Really? Uh, yeah, it wow. would go. It would go south quick. What is the concern? Is it is it such a commercial market for sturgeon caviar? Is that what it is? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Wow. So people just go that far out of their way to get caviar that they had to just make these. It's like a fish right now is worthless if you can't use the caviar, right? Right. We're allowed that. There's a fishery for them. Uh, they fish the, the sturgeon. In the Gulf of St. Lawrence, when they catch them, they have to gut them. They have to remove every egg and dump the eggs into the water. That's They're allowed crazy. to bring the meat back to smoke it and salt it and to sell it. There is a commercial commercial wild fishery for uh, sturgeon meat. But the – so ultimately, you just put a price tag on the fish. Let's say it's worth 200 bucks. But all of a sudden, if you're allowed to harvest the eggs and the fish – 15 just, grand. It, yeah, it would just 15 be – 15 grand. Yeah, because they produce a monolithic amount of eggs. Well, what's crazy is now you're making it useless because you're throwing it away, something that's incredibly valuable and delicious. The quotas are very small, though. Let's say if you had a sturgeon license, I imagine you'd allowed five or six or something like that. And uh, the First Nations, like Mohawks, Mm -hmm. the Iroquois, have the right to fish. You know, we've been on boats where a guy was fishing. You know, he showed us the traditional technique and 
it's not sports fishing. Like they eat soup, they eat this, they eat like they love it. It's great fish, and they, themselves they eat the eggs and make soup. They put the eggs in it. They like. Oh, they catch sturgeon twenty minutes from Joe Beef. Wow! Yeah, right there downtown. <laughs> like it's a dinosaur. Yeah, yeah, with a with a spear. Wow! Yeah, it's a crazy animal. And when, you, when you see them in the water, oh yeah, you like, see the scales on them. It's so bizarre. Yeah. I mean, how they're from what a hundred million years ago? They're or prehistoric animals. Like they look like dinosaurs. They really do. Yeah, and the guys that we know that fish them. He's quite the character. He's an interesting guy. He's a, he's a mohawk. And um, he told us that the biologists put underwater cameras there to look keep track of the fish. And they said they see like 16 layers of sturgeon swimming, one on top of the other. He said, I, I could walk on the fish. Wow. You know? There's that many. Yeah. yeah. There's a ton. Wow. That's uh, but again, you know, the people don't really, we, we even struggle with it at the restaurant. Uh, but for me to sell a plate of smoked sturgeon, Tough sell, uh, you know. I'll sooner sell other things than that, uh, you know. Because people aren't interested. I, th- I think it's a tough sell as a fish. Let's say as a as a two hundred gram or you know four ounce piece Look of at fish. That thing, that is so crazy. Mm. Is that the same river? That's right, Columbia River sturgeon. It, it looks yeah, like Fraser from what River. I see. Yeah, Fraser in BC. Look at the size of that thing. That is so ancient looking. It looks it's like f- it shouldn't be here. Yeah, it's a fish that's a bit muddy to sometimes depending on where it's caught and everything so mm. how do it, you uh how do you handle it like if you were gonna cook one of those we make jamaican patties with it yeah in this yeah. book we did in old french cookery uh one of the ways to cook sturgeon is you know, ultimately you apply cooking a piece of sturgeon loin as you would a piece of veal loin or pork loin uh meat juice even is acceptable you know roasted carrots roasted onions roasted celery roast the sturgeon and bacon serve it mushroom with meat red juice, wine bacon mushroom red wine like mm. fred said so you treat the sturgeon as you would meat ah. is possibly the best way to treat it as you would fish is not the best you know people hmm. got to expect we 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 were overly fortunate to have you know 300 gram you know like a pound of fish seared in a pan and served with a little sauce was common thing, right? But it's not the right thing to do if we want to keep things in, in the water, you know, right, for right. our kids or whatever. So people got used to this, like, a piece of fish that tastes like nothing that you can eat for, like, an hour and a half because you have so much of it, and that's the standard. But a fish like sturgeon is great if you have a little bit in a sauce like David May talks about over, like, a buttery mashed potatoes or like with like a egg noodles or something like that. It's a great way to do it. And it's a great way to look at fish where like you need actually 75 grams of protein, not like 500, you know? What is the, is there a comparison that you can make in terms of what it tastes like? Yeah. Uh, veal loin a little bit, I guess. Really? Somewhat, you wow. know, braised, uh, braised veal collar. Uh, what do you say? Blanquette. A, a, lar- stew, a like, larger piece of stew, like not a small, you know, two-inch block of stew, but let's say a bigger piece of stew. With a chunk of seaweed in it, you know? Yeah. It's neat. Wow. It's neat. It sounds, now I'm, now I'm hungry for it. Now we I'm do, like, uh, Fred Fred got the, made the, uh, the McNuggets molds, you know, because, you know, the McNuggets have this, like, not, they're, there's like four or five different yeah. sizes. Fred made the mold in the first book, and they precisely, exactly like the McDonald's McNuggets. And we used to do sturgeon McNuggets. Or eel. Or eel McNuggets. Same fishery, right? We have eels where we get sturgeon. Uh, 
And it was kind of cool. We sold a fish. ton of them at the restaurant. It would literally, you'd be at Joe Beef and you'd get on your plate what looked to be like six McNuggets with a sauce and the little paper cup on the side. People were like, what the, fuck it? What the hell is this? I said, sturgeon nuggets. People. Eel is a weird one. When I used to go fishing a lot, um, people would catch eels, they'd be upset. Like, and then yeah. I would go to buy sushi later on in life, and uh, there'd be eel sushi. And I'd be like, what the fuck is going on? It's a on? different uh, wolf. Is that wolf eel? Yeah, it's use? a different fish. Yeah. It's, yeah. Not, it's not a true eel. Uh, yeah. In sushi? Yeah, yeah. correct. Yeah. Oh, Even like not? the real eel, I'm, I can eat bits of it. But if we were to like take an eel, a eel and, and just like first you have to put a nail in its head and a nail in its tail and like skin it. And then oh, you, you have can to... cut its head off and peel it and put it in a cast iron pan with butter and it's still moving like a snake. And the smell it's of a horrific it while it creature. Cooks, it's like it, it makes you choke. You know, we had like <laughs> four. We had a little trout pond at Joe Beef that I built, you know. Really? In yeah. The back? And yeah. It, it was a bad experience because <laughs> we had a. a a refrigerator thing to make the water cold, you know, a cooler, and we had a pump. But every time it rained, it would turn the breaker off, and now the fish, like, drown. Drown, no oxygen. Martin yeah. Picard gave us some eels. And we found him the next day in the parking lot. Like, all the, they found. Dude, on the other side of the parking lot, in the baseball field where Look the bleachers were. Look at that were. shit. They're cooking it, and it's swimming at a rapid it's ha- it's pace. It's had no head and no skin at this point. This is a grill. What does it say? It says, shocking clip of cooking an eel alive in soul. No, but it's got that, that eel is beheaded and yes. skinned. It's beheaded, and it's still skinned. nervous system is still very intact. What, is, uh, what are those things in the bottom? Those are its legs? What is, what, That's what? probably its guts. Oh, God. Look at that thing bucking. Oh and man, kicking. that's like that's real stir frying. I caught one once in Nova Scotia on a hook and line, Ooh. and when I caught it, the fisherman next to me said, "Oh, don't reel it in." So I just held my fishing rod. I wasn't reeling in, and the eel reeled itself up my line to the tip of my fishing rod and started Whoa. reeling down my fishing rod towards me. I was a kid. I was horrified. Ever since then, I've had an issue with like eels. <laughs> I worked in a restaurant in France, in Dijon, and in the fridge, right near the, the cook of the hotline, the cooking line, there was a, a wooden box with a cinder block on it. It's the first day I worked there. I was helping out on the fish station, and I hear in French, une anguille en commande, one eel ordered up. And then the, 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 the fish chef says, go in the fridge, there's a wooden box. You take the cinder block off it, you just lift the lid a little bit, plunge your hand in there, grab an eel, and bring it back to me. I was like, you're kidding, right? (laughs) So I literally do that. I go into the walk-in fridge, I pull the wooden box out, I take the cinder block off the top, I lift the hit. It it, it was just literally, you know, 50 eels writhing together in a box. That's like Indiana Jones, you know? No, they they live with it out of water, no problem. Martin Picard at Pierre de Cochon in his restaurant right now. I was there last week. He has a lobster tank right in a doorway. I think they hang your coats right above it, and in it there's like eight massive eels. They have and to also, chase them when they come at work in the morning. They reopen the restaurant. They'll find them like in the cash register, in the coat check, <laughs> in, in the front in of the, the lettuce bins. They have like cinder blocks God. down now on the top. They got a plexiglass top with holes in it so it oxygenates and they're like, literally pinned down in that tank. But even as you're eating and you just see those giant eels in a tank the size of your flag here, it's just horrific. You know just what's like, the best thing about eels? 
talking about it. <laughs> That's <laughs> literally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, what about the flavor? Mm. I like it super smoked, super salted down with a good sugary, salty brine. So you have to cover it. Yeah, like in nuggets like we did. But like even like, like in that restaurant David was talking about, if you take a fresh piece of eel and put it in a cast iron pan, the smoke it does, it's like mustard gas. Oh, yeah. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's got like it's super I'm a little bit allergic to, I guess, not all fish, but some fish. And I, I, when I used to work at that restaurant, we would literally pit, like put a knife through its head and into the cutting board, and then another knife through its tail so it would be straight on the, on the cutting board. So we'd pin down the, the, the left side and the right side of the eel. Then we'd lift the fillets, skin them, score them, and then pan sear them with artichoke and country ham. And as I was pan searing them, I was breathing in the vapors of searing the eel, and my, my lungs would seize you know, I'd have like kind of like it would, it would give me an asthma attack somewhat. It was wild. Now, is this a popular dish in France because of necessity, because of a lack of food Correct. A lot of a lot of old French cooking would be based on what you had in your neighborhood. Uh, you know, French cooking was very different pre-Federal Express, pre-Rhodes, mm. you know, so at eels in French cooking would come from the Bordeaux region ultimately and, you know, would be like la matelote d'anguille. So it would be an eel stew in red wine with, of course, carrot, onion, celery, exactly like a beef stew. And I uh, think also the, the thing about it is that it's a dish that you wouldn't make at home, you know. Mm. So people would go, allez, on va manger de l'anguille, let's go and eat he- eel because... That's you, what there was. You don't want to have the cinder block plexiglass <laughs> case in your house and then... The, Imagine your house with your your kids or my kids. They eat lampreys. There's, you know, in Bordeaux, there's some, you know, some of the famous iconic dishes of Bordeaux is lampreys. This is like an animal from Dune, you know? It's like a big hole with teeth. They're the ones that cling to the bottom of sharks. Correct. No, that's a remora. Oh, okay. Lamprey is a problem, actually, now even in America. They're coming up in some rivers, and they attach themselves to fish with their suction cup head. They're just horrific animals. Toothed oh. suction cup head. Yeah, it yeah, looks it's tooth. It's like alien. Dune. It's like that yeah, animal in it does Dune. Look like that. Yeah. Ugh. What do they taste like? Probably crappy, like eel. Like we a did a eel. we did a dinner. <laughs> like a shittier eel. <laughs> we did a dinner for Tony, and he did his second book, I think, at Liverpool House, and I was I we were much younger, and I was like, oh, let's buy some like daring food, you know? This Tony Bourdain, let's buy something like fucked up. So I ordered like two of those eel. And I try to make soup with it. I try to make everything. And again, you know, the, my classic joke, the best thing to do with it is to put it in the garbage. Like that was the, <laughs> you, or you make stock, you reduce it, then you throw it away. I'm sure there's a recipe that's good. And I'm sure in, in case of apocalypse, after the winter subsides, uh, we'll fish for that and we'll eat it. But until then, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm okay with like, Cutting my Big Macs in half so they last for two days. You There's know? a cool company, though. I've been following a company online, on, uh, I think on Twitter, Instagram. It's called American Unagi. They're up in uh, the Atlantic Northeast, or I think in Maine or Massachusetts somewhere. Uh, they have some really – they're raising eels, I think, releasing them into the nature. And uh, they're selling eels commercially. It looks, again, like horrific work. Raising them and Tanks releasing them in the eels. nature. <laughs> what, is there like some sort of a environmental benefit of having the eels? Is that nature? like sting that bought the the lobster and 
put it away in a freshwater river. <laughs> they're a weird animal, right? Again, loosely based. My facts are old reading. Uh, but from what I recall, eels are cool because they all the eels every year go back to the Sargasso Sea. Right? Is it true that that's what I remember? Is that folklore? You think? Is this I an think old so fact because there's a thing about, about the oyster still... filtration volume. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oysters <laughs> filter eels. Yeah. So they all go back to this one area. The, yeah, they supposedly a there's a breeding like a area for them called the Sargasso Sea. Great place then... for swimming. <laughs> <laughs> and where's the Sargasso Sea? It's kind of a southern middle Atlantic, from what I recall. That's pretty. That's pretty safe. Bet. Right, right where the where the right where the mythical plastic patch is. Oh, the plastic. That's the Pacific. You think that's mythical? I don't know. I've never seen really a giant, a real true picture uh, of it. There's a Sargasso Sea. Okay, eels. Look at the eels. In our last Making of... their way. Wow. Oh. That's so creepy. Look at that fucker. Making his way. Beautiful video, too, man. <laughs> what <Yeah>. is this? <laughs> Pretty cool. Wow. There's a guy named uh, Boyan Slot. This is his name. Uh, who uh, is a young fellow that figured out a way to filter out the garbage patch. And uh, he's yeah. uh, been, he developed this device and they recently started implementing it. But he's been, uh, he's been on the podcast before and went into great detail about it. The garbage patch is real. See, that's the American Unagi that. site. Whoa. Look at those fuckers just flopping around. Yeah, so they're in American Maine. American Unagi's uh, Instagram page we're on right now. They're in Maine? Yeah. Um, Our aquaculture. That's uh, cool. Damar's Cotta. It's great oysters there, too. Yeah, amazing. What about, uh, have you guys ever um, cooked or eaten blueberry bear? No, we don't. Uh, Mart- Martin in Montreal. Martin is eating bears. He's, he's hunting bear. He goes and baits mm-hmm. every weekend, and then he goes and shacks. And What's a blueberry bear, though? My friend Steve Ranella has uh, described this to me. Uh, uh, apparently, when bears eat blueberries, when they find, uh, like, it's towards the fall in particular, when they're trying to fatten up before they go into the den, they'll find these massive fields of blueberries. He, uh, he shot one in Alaska. And this bear had eaten so many blueberries that when they opened it up, it smelled like blueberries. The, the, the actual fat had a purple hue to it. And it's supposed to be a spectacularly delicious meat. That wow. totally makes sense. Yeah. But you know, the, it's funny you say that because I was thinking about that with venison before. I, we have some friends who had a venison farm. And what they This they, is it right here. This is uh, Steve mm. cooking it on his show. The show's called Meat Eater. Steve will actually be a uh, guest on the show here Friday. Um, but see how the the fat has yeah, like yeah, a yeah. hue to it. Amazing. But he said it's it all smells like blueberry. So he rendered down the the bear fat and then because this was all in the field and then cooked the bear meat, this blueberry bear meat, chunks of it in the fat. Well, if the pigment is uh, liposoluble, then it would make sense that you find it in the fat. Mm. But they made uh, they made experiments. Our friends with the deer farm and what they did, they wanted to know if the uh, the taste of venison was owed to the fact that the diet of the animal or the way that hunters traditionally break down the meat in the field, the field dressing of the meat, you know? Mm. So what they did is they put a, a beef, like a steer, and they shot him and they, they prepared him. They dressed him the way you would a deer or a moose. And then they, at the same time, did the same thing with the deer. And then they did the slaughterhouse treatment, like a commercial treatment for both animal. And they realized that once you uh, you wait a little bit, even on the beef, before you gut it, before you skin it and everything, 
that um, funky or that like gamey. Uh, gamey taste will come even to beef, mm. you know? So you, you picture that's what, yeast in nature? It's probably also they think that you might lack the skills to properly extract the guts. You might perforate the guts. Sometimes you might perforate the, the bile uh, pouch there. Parts of the innards might come in contact. Uh, the skin will be on too long. Or it's not bled properly as well. Yeah, it's not bled properly. And then, you know, it's not chilled super rapidly. You kill in the morning, the, the whole sun is out. You know, you don't have a fridge with you. You have no water. And But on the other hand, when we have the wild rabbits, they taste like uh, juniper. Like yeah. very, very, very strongly like juniper. And that's... That's, in fact, the challenge is to get rid of some of that juniper taste. Yeah, it's like the partridge that we shoot at the lake. Uh, and in fact, it's... it's it tastes a, like spruce, spruce tips. And instead mm. of when we cook, sometimes we'll cook meat and then we'll, we'll even had, add a partridge or at home, I'll add a partridge or a, a wild rabbit just as seasoning to the rest of the pot, you know? If you look at all the traditional French-Canadian dishes of hunters, they're all like, all the games are mixed up. You know, so you never have, this is a modern cuisinier, like culinary fancy thing to have a breast of partridge seared on a bed of cabbage. You know, those things are always treated with, like I said earlier, with fat, with like all the spices, with wine, with cognac, with layers of like, you know, even like organ meats in there and you put a crust over it and cabbage, you know, it's like, that's like we said, it needs a lot of skills to eat like good games yeah i've yeah. never had gamey venison i've been very very fortunate that i've uh, first of all i've learned to hunt from people that really know what they're doing so we didn't let anything sit out in the heat and made sure we opened it up and cooled it out quickly but one of the things that they do do um when, when guys are deep into the backcountry and they have an animal and they they kill it and it's even in the summer when it's warm out what they do is they hang it and give it a lot of air circulation and it develops a crust on the outside, and then they cut that crust back, um, and then the the meat underneath it is sort of tenderized in a lot of ways. And a lot of hunters say that it's even more delicious that way. Yeah, it's protected by the, the by the by the crust the air has yes. created, and of yeah. course, it probably starts the bacteriological work starts to work inside of that crust. There's age. two process right by which the meat gets tender. The first one is the rigor mortis. Right, like the meat rests, and the rigor mortis, like all the, I guess all the cortisol and everything that like stiffens the meat at death, well, the meat will rest, and then it's an enzymatic reaction where the enzymes work and break down some of the meat fibers and the tougher muscles and stuff. In French, the word for uh, resting meat is called fezandé, and fezand is a pheasant, you know, because they used to hang the pheasants by, by the, the neck. Yeah, until yeah. they fell. And say so when the beak falls off the skull, then they're ready to eat. Yeah, I've seen that before. That is so strange. It's hard to eat. I've had it a couple of times. And people what does are like, it taste like? It tastes like death warmed over. <laughs> what the fuck is wrong with these people? Uh, Why are they eating it like because that? Because it's, uh, you know, a lot of the people love uh, strong flavors like blue cheese, like uh, Munster cheese in yeah. Germany, uh, you know. So this is uh, – because ultimately if you just eat it fresh, it's chicken of the woods really. Right. But so it's good. Yeah. By letting it go a little bit, letting it rot a oh. little bit, they get these like secondary, tertiary, intense flavors. That... Uh, maybe too, we're talking about probiotics. You know, you don't, those traditional ways, you don't always know what you, why you do them. Right. But maybe initially they're like 
you incubate, you know, you immunize yourself a little bit, you know? Mm. It's like the taste is you got to love it after you're used to it, but initially it might be a way to have some of the bacterias. I think you talked about soil-based probiotics before I read about that. Like we're realizing that like, okay, yogurt probiotics are not the whole thing, you know? So maybe mm -hmm. there's soil-based probiotic, animal-based probiotic. Maybe we're completely wrong about what flora we're ingesting. And maybe that was like a old, A good way to get your flora. Yeah. Makes sense. I, I, I guess there, there would be some strategies for taking that stuff in. But I would think flavor-wise it would... I mean, because pheasant, if you just eat it fresh, it's delicious. It's light. It's very nice. Like, I would think that unless there was no other way to store it and they didn't have refrigeration, which, of course, they didn't when they first started Refrigeration doing this. is a super modern yeah. invention if you look back. Like, I worked for chefs uh, in my apprenticeship that told me stories about their apprenticeship, and it's like night and day. They said, when we woke up in the morning, we used to have to fill the ovens with coal you know, and go wow. down to the ice locker and drag an ice block into through the, the what's that stuff called? The wood sawdust through the sawdust shed and put, like I was like, what? Wow! You know, a lot of these old French restaurants that are famous had coal-fired ovens and ice block fridges, and right? the apprentices would live above, and they'd take shift. You know, one night it'd be you that would make sure it doesn't die because otherwise it'd be hard to start again, you know? Like so real coal. Like wow. Yeah, the stoves would burn every day all the, all the time. The, wow. The, the, the restaurant stove was ultimately was also heating the whole building as well. <laughs> the hotel was heated by the restaurant. Wow. Yeah. Well, it makes sense. I mean, it really does. But th there's not a lot of animals that they would let get that funky other than... Shark. The shark. Oh, that thing they shark. do in uh, Iceland? Or, that pickled uh, shark? There's a Korean dish that I, I'm actually curious to try. It's skate wing that is fermented. But until it gets that ammonia flavor, you know? Like, you smell a camembert and a poisse, and you smell it. It smells good. Funky cheese. Then you, you go a bit deeper, you know? Bigger whiff. And then you're like, wow, Windex. You know, you got, like, the ammonia. And some people mm. look for that. Different cultures are into different flavors. Yeah. A friend of mine, Andy, went to Calcutta um, three weeks ago and came back with the number one candy in Calcutta or in India. It's this weird candy called Pulse. If we had one right now, all three of us, it's a repulsive candy that tastes incredibly of sulfur and fecal rot. Oh. But in in India, that's the candy. Like people love it, you know. What? As well, in American winemaking and French winemaking, there's things in winemaking called flaws. You know, usually the flaws of wine in France and in natural winemaking, organic winemaking, will always be volatile acidity and Bertanomyces. Um, volatile acidity smells in the wine vastly of vinegar. And Britannomyces smells vastly of fecal matter, barnyard fecal matter, you know. Uh, these in, in, in North American wine and even in French wine are considered as flaws, you know. In Japan, they love natural wines from France that have high volatile acidity and Britannomyces smells what would be ultimately considered a flawed wine in France in natural wine world is considered a delicacy in Japan in the natural wine world. 
Wow, so do they purposely take ones that have that funky smell and ship them off to Japan? Some winemakers, you know, the, the wine agent will come and visit the, the seller, and usually the winemaker will point him in the direction and say, maybe you, this might be for, and then he goes, yes, yes, this is what we like. Do we'll they take cultivate it on purpose in that direction? I, I figure, like, nobody right now will come up and say it outright. Uh, but I believe so. As in, and there are they Japanese, don't stop it. there yeah. are Japanese winemakers now all through France that work in a very funky way, and are more or less, you know, pushing those wines into the Japanese market. Okay, I have to try this just because it's disgusting. So tell me what the name of the candy is again. Pulse. Spell that P U L. P U L S E. It's a green mango candy. Yeah, it's, it's originally it's a classic snack, right? Where they they use the sulfur salt. It's called black salt. And they'd put a bit of chili and sulfur salt on mango. And I have to admit that when I had the, the, the real green mango with the sulfur salt, it's not that bad. That candy was like pushed. It's like the mega warheads, you know, that we had as kids. I wonder, too, sometimes, like, the gamey flavor of the pheasant, the cheese, the this, the eel, the that. It's a, it, I see it sometimes as a, a bit of a, like, you know, the ghost peppers, a bit of a pissing contest between... Uh. Yeah. You know, like... Right. It's like, like... No one could possibly enjoy the taste of ghost pepper, no. right? No. Does it, I mean, does it even have a taste? I mean, you even responding to that taste? I won't even try it. Have you, you, you know who? No. You know who loves that? You know Olivier? Yes. Like, those guys, they have like... Well, they watch like Game of Thrones. They get together. And they, they eat ghost they, peppers? Oh, yeah. And they have like... They're, We're they're talking past- about Olivier Aubon Mercier, who's a fighter in the UFC. Yeah. And they'll, they'll have like ghost pepper parties, you know. And then the <laughs> next day, they'll go to Comic-Con and dress up as superheroes and then play some online poker and then eat more ghost peppers. Well, he's also a UFC fighter. I mean, you got to <laughs> think, he's a very extreme human being. He's a funny kid, man. He's a very, very, very nice guy. Yeah. yeah you know, I mean, brilliant. if you didn't know that he was a trained killer, you would have no yeah. idea. If you talk to him, it just seems like a gentleman. Yeah, he's a sweetie. Yeah, he's yeah. a good kid. Yeah. And it's a good for, – for us, it's interesting. You know, we we actually have a bit of a chapter in the book where we talk loosely about those guys and that relationship. Were we you get, guys sponsored him or something? Before the before the Reebok thing. Right, yeah, because I remember one, one of the fights uh, that we did in Montreal – um, we went to your restaurant afterwards, and Olivier showed up after his fight. And yeah. you guys were congratulating him. And I thought yeah, that was really yeah. Cool. His uh, his fiance, his wife works, his girlfriend works with us at the restaurant. Yeah, for a long ah. time now. Wow. And uh, you know, we met because these guys. It's it's interesting, eh? They're super into food, and they're open to a lot of things, and they're curious, and a lot of them get aimed in the wrong direction, you know, like the brown rice and chicken direction. Mm-hmm. And and you're responsible for, in big part, for the awakening, the nutritional awakening of these guys. You know, a lot of them go for their gun license now just to be able to hunt. They go fishing on the weekend. They go for like two hours hike in the wood and like f- little fishing rod. They come back with trouts and we get a phone call. He's like, hey, Fred, I go fish for trouts. You know, what do I do with that? You know, it's it's a great thing. And yeah, we did we did sponsor them after, but then what we do now is we um, we cook for them post way in. Ah, yeah. We, Marco did GSP the last fight at uh, Madison Square Gardens. They were the boys were there for a week. Uh, we've done Tim Kennedy after. Oh, so they came for a week and just hung out and cooked meals. For we them? sent yeah. the kids. Uh, Marco and Fred goes and Gab goes. Uh, Gabriel Drapo. They go. They rent a suite and they prepare all of the meals. 
up to weight cut and afterwards. Oh. And do they have nutritional requirements for the weight cut? And like, do, like the week they of? They do. They have a nutritionist different. there with them, but so then they guidelines. They have the correct. plan. But my, I have a, a take on that is if the nutritionist writes a plan and the food's not good and you don't eat it, then it doesn't doesn't work, right? Right. Like it can be right on paper, but if you don't take the pill, then you mm-hmm. you don't do like the job. Like you can say chicken and kale, this much grams, this, but but we can a professional cook will make the kale delicious. Or Brussels sprouts and instead, cook the chicken properly because yeah. the kale could be bad and the chicken and could the be dry. Thing right, too right. that works. That the I guys are already suffering. <laughs> the thing that works the best in that case is that all of a sudden you have in the room, we set up a little table. With, so it's not like PlayStation dirty underwears, like pre-fight vibe. It's dining with friends. It's, it's dining with friends, and yeah. and whether it's Marco, Gab, me, we know we don't talk. If you don't want to talk, if you want to talk, we're here, you know, and we'll, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll hang out. But then you feel like your eggs in that tortilla. You feel like your eggs with potatoes or like it's, it's mellow. And it helps a lot with the, just the context of not being like ordering pizza from room service. Right. You know, yeah, George used a, to tell us horror stories, you know, before some of his biggest wins years ago. George said eating like room service rigatoni and pizza before like a major fight, you know? So now it's different. And it's fun because like David said earlier, we have many interests and it's great to be able to explore them like that, you know? Because we couldn't couldn't do this job if it was for like 12 stoves in the kitchen, a bunch of pans, cooking pieces of meat, writing books about the seasons and tomatoes and starting again. Like I, I couldn't do it. Like we love, yeah. Being a chef is like one-dimensional, really. You know, and that whether it's like Olivier, whether it's like going to visit a Neil farm, and you know, like it's it, it's it makes it worthwhile up to this point. Well, you guys have a great philosophy about that, and that's one of the things that really came through with the Bourdain show when you guys were in the ice shack. Is that you? You enjoy living well. Uh, yeah, everybody has to live better. Take care of yourself, man. Yeah. You know, turn your phone off. Sit with your kids. Listen That's to the things that brilliant really things, man. You know, turn my, your phone off and and come with stories. I had friends. Uh, one of my, I have all my children now. I I love to sit at the table and I'm quiet. I just let them talk and ask me questions and watch them and it's just the best. It's better than my relationship with my kids is better than any relationship I have with any of my best friends. My kids are more interesting. My family's more interesting and it's work to stay in, you know, contact with your family and even the staff, you know. Uh, I enjoy very much working in the restaurants that we've built. Um, some I work five days a week with people that I've been working with for 15 years these are important relationships. It's not employee-employer. It's if you quit and you tell me you're leaving, I'm going to be. I'm going to go in my car and cry. I've been working with you for 15 years. My relationship that I have with many people that I work with is intimate. I've seen their children born. I've seen them go through breakups. I've seen them their parents die. I've seen you know like we go to war every night at six o'clock. 150 people are coming to eat in the next three hours in four restaurants. We, you know. It's a job that's so different. Very high stress environment 
for five minutes for for two hours it's we we got to walk properly we got to we're 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 knowledgeable of each other's space Uh, there's a ballet you know when you're washing the glasses and the food's coming out behind you you know you have a sixth sense to know to move not to get the plate to burn your elbow and you know, there's this ballet we dance every night with these people. And for us to think that, like, and most people st- still think that we're behind the stove cooking. I've got more phone calls to get help finding a doctor, therapist, whatever, you know, nutritionist for the staff. Then I got calls about recipes or food. Or, you know, our job <laughs> is I'm an expert in drain pipes. Artisanal you know? plumbing, artisanal ele- electricity, artisanal refrigeration. Uh, I, I know about concrete <laughs> pouring now. You Why? Because you've done it yourself? Yeah, we yeah, have these restaurants. Like, They're very decrepit old buildings, and you can't. You know, we're running a restaurants with employees and a constant burden of payroll, and we can't just call everybody all the time. Mm-hmm. To, so, you know, by default, any good cooking school today – what Fred is saying, and Fred is the example of what a great chef should be. Should be a very good cook, a very good person with people skills, but should also have a minor in electricity, plumbing, and refrigeration technology. First aid, you know. Even even now, like we both, we both don't drink. We both, I wouldn't say a health kick, but just like want to be there, you know, mind and body. We want to be like present, and that's that's. We built something that's, cool. I want to appreciate it, not be clouded. That's overlooked. That that's that like people don't think about that when they get into this job. You know, they they think it's this warrior thing. This we're savage. We're gonna drink. We're gonna party. We're gonna do this. No, mm. if you want to do that till you're sixty and then get a little cottage and write, paint, watercolor, buy 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 a sailboat, you have to think about it. You know, it's like you can't live that life of drinking and. You know, Why do you think that life is synonymous with chefs? We've been promoted and taught, ultimately, that you will get paid, you will make money, you will persevere if you understand how to promote excessive eating and excessive drinking. You will be recompensed if you build a place where people come and eat too much and drink too much and then spend too much, then you will be able to have a life, a car, a house, and raise children. Okay, so it's all good. First, you have to learn how to cook. Then you have to learn how to run a restaurant. Then you have to learn how to, what a restaurant looks like and how to run and, you know, how and to host, host how to host, what the playlist should be like, uh, how to fix a plumbing disaster, how to fix an electricity disaster, how to fix a staff situation disaster, how to run a clean house or people are working together with all their different idiosyncrasies. Uh, but... For my whole apprenticeship, alcohol was a reward. You know, uh, you did a good job tonight. Drink, you know. Uh, and then it went from re- reward to, oh shit! There was like a bloodbath in the restaurant. You know, we had to pick up this guy at the hospital. Okay, it's not a reward. Let's forget about it. Let's drink. You know, mm-hmm. and it was it was always there. You know, it's great service. Let's have a drink. Shitty and you're in the service. wine. You're, you're in the food industry, but you're also in the wine industry because fifty mm. percent of what you're doing is selling food to people, and the other fifty percent of what you're doing is selling alcohol to people. So by default, you're part of the people that sell 
a liquid drug. Mm. And Dealers. you're in that you're in that world every day. And you go to wine tastings. You talk with people that sell alcohol at bartenders. You talk to people that sell wine. You're partaking, eating in other your colleagues' restaurants and drinking wine. Next thing you know, you have a little bit of celebrity. You've been open for 15 years, and you look back and you go, "There's seven days in a week. Seven days in a week, and I drank six of them." I don't feel mm. good on Sunday. I'm just mm. kind of recovering. And then but what happens is one week turns into two to four, and then you kind of look back and you realize in 2017 that you may have drank 48 weeks out of 52, you know, and then it goes quick. Then it's 10 years, and you're a 10-year restaurant, and you've been drinking five days out of the week for 10 years. And then all of a sudden, you kind of have a problem. You realize that, like, my day-to-day is based on food and wine, right? Now, I don't want my – it's not making me happy. I've had all the wines. I've had all the foods. Am I better for it? Not really. What am I better for? Restriction, eating less, eating clean, uh, drinking only on very special occasions. Do you still drink on special occasions? I don't. I'm completely sober, no. Did you make that decision based on the idea that you weren't able to control it or just that you I'm the one of best the f- decision would be to just completely eliminate it? Textbook case of a person who couldn't drink. Um, yeah, I tried several times to stop. I Googled it. I read about it. It didn't work. I, I was interventioned by Fred and my managers of the restaurants in January 12th, around there, 16th, I think we figured. Um, and Of this year? Yeah. I'm eight months sober or something. Congratulations. Thank you. And, um, you look really good. Thank you. Thank you so you much. You do. You look healthy. I'm happy, man. It That's changes, the key. like, the skin, everything. Yeah. It's, isn't like, it amazing when that happens? Conversation, like, I was angry for a long time. You know, I had, like, you know, it's not only alcoholism. Is, you know, I think all alcoholics are codependent somewhat, you know? Like, it's just, it had been part of my whole apprenticeship, not being sober for so, so many years. Uh, it was all under control and funny for a very, very long time. It was always a big part of my life, drinking wine, eating food. Um, till it wasn't, you know. Then one day, I was, you know, 45. My relationship with alcohol changed. I became dark. I became unhappy. I had success. I had beautiful children. I was not happy. Uh, you know, I, I tried many different things. Nothing worked. I was interventioned by people that I, that, I, that I work with that are dear to me, that I love very much, I guess that love me. They're t- tired of watching me, you know, make bad decisions. And I just went to a great rehab called Chatsworth that educated me. You know, I was sitting in a classroom with a pad and paper for six hours a day learning about the disease called alcoholism, learning about a disease that 30% of the population has, uh, you know, and how and why I was an addict, you know. Uh, first, I was an addict with food. Then, I, you know, at a young age, after a traumatic event, then I was an addict about with beer. Then I was an addict with marijuana, like, you know, all drugs. And then I was an addict with wine. Uh, follow up a couple more traumatic events in my, you know, horrendous apprenticeship and the stress of leadership in these restaurants. And, you know, one thing led to another. My relationship with alcohol became not positive. So with help, I understood. Through with education, I understood. And now uh, everything's great. It's funny, too, because... I saw it as, as, as an example. You know, I don't like to tell him, but maybe it's a little bit of mentoring, you know. 
I was um, the canary in the coal mine for Fred. <laughs> you know, and I decided, I was like, fuck. You know, after Tony passed, I was like, you know, I, was, I remember I was working in a, in a new project doing tilings. And I was like, oh, I heard the news in the morning. I went, I went to tile all day. And then I couldn't wait to get home and have like two bottles of wine. And I was like, why? And it, we were the same about that. It didn't matter like what we loved at a point. Look, for example, we loved MMA, right? We loved going to the fights. We were like so fortunate. We'd go and see, we met the Fertitta brothers. They, we discussed, like we, we, we sat with them at dinner table. We met you. We met all those guys. Uh, David loves winemaking, met all the winemakers. We met the best people in the field that we loved. Charmed life, not happy. Not happy. Mm. Like ungrateful fucking little pricks. Well, you know, I think part of the problem is that alcohol is a depressant. Correct. It's a huge sure. problem. Just you, you get down. It just it brings you down. It brings you down. It brings your energy level down. It brings it's also your a vitality solvent. down. It's, alcohol is a solvent, and it destroys your soft brain tissue. You yeah. know, I was taught that in rehab. I said, would you drink acetone? I go, no. Well, what? if it was made by a, a lovely French vineyard, <laughs> with barnyard aroma. <laughs> But do you do you miss anything about the flavor of wine with a meal or anything? Have you ever tried non? Are there I, non-alcoholic I, the, wines? Uh, I don't even know. Non-alcoholic beers. I go to wine tastings. I was just at Raw Wine in Los in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. I went to taste all the natural wines. Beautiful natural wine festival. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can taste them still. I taste them. I don't swallow. I rinse my mouth out. Oh, I'm very like, much involved in natural wine and the and and, and that and, and viticulture reading and all that stuff. That's got to be so weird to have a mouthful of delicious wine to spit it into a bucket no it's the same really yeah it's like because that's why did i drink wine olfactory the nose the flavor understanding the winemaker his philosophy the the geography of where the wine comes from his work with you know with using organic and biodynamic viticulture uh not using sulfur uh, just making this amazing organic beverage with very little intervention natural wine Without it's side fa- effects, I don't have to swallow it because right. the drug is the same drug that it's in that's in all the other ones. Right, that right. they can't change. The flavors, what's different? Yes, yes, you know. And what I like is more of the story, the guy, the vineyard, the varietals. This, you know. Would you eat at a fine restaurant and have a delicious steak and uh, oh, we a, do. a wine accompaniment, and then just spit it into a bucket? I've done it. Goes wow. to the bathroom. I had. A, I had. I was it? really worried. He shuts his mouth and he goes to the bathroom. I was worried with a, uh, a mouthful of wine. Ryan, uh, Ryan Grave, our friend from Elena that worked with us for years. Ryan goes to a restaurant, and asks for a bucket, <laughs> and he'll a, sit with other reason. people, people in the wine business, and they all drink wine, and he tastes the wine, and he has discussions about wine, and he tastes it and spits it, and because you know, he's an alcoholic. Yeah, he's a recovered alcoholic, three wow. years, but he's a wine buyer, and he's very much involved. He was my mentor when I got out of uh, rehab, because in rehab, they were telling me, you may never be able to go back to the restaurant. What? Yeah. And high, I was like, high risk of reoffending. Yeah, you. and I was like, I can't, like, I go, I don't know anything else. Like, I have no education. I've been in kitchen since I'm 17. It's way too late for med school, and uh, <laughs> we don't do well in Adderall. I, like, so. I really don't want to <laughs> clean iceberg lettuce at the fruits and vegetables store and try to make a go of that. And you know, it's funny, too. Like, even, like, dealkalized beer, non-alcoholic beer, it's better than alcoholic beer. What are you That's talking about? Heineken who, zero who zero, you? man. Crisp. Really? Crisp. Outstanding. Really? Heineken oh. zero zero? Outstanding. It's really good? It's yeah. fine. Well, I've only had like O'Doul's. No, it's yeah. not good. 
Okay, so so Heineken does it correctly. The the the, the order of non-alcoholic beer, okay, in my head okay. is I'm Heineken zero zero. Okay, hold on. Carlsberg zero. Grolsch zero. Grolsch. Bex oh, yeah. zero. Oh. And then everything else is not good after well, that. Well let me add to that because I'm also celiac, right? And there's a glutenberg they make in Montreal that's no gluten and no alcohol. And now you can insert, are, like, you can insert any joke rate. you want. People are signing off the podcast like, this, right now. This yeah. podcast was, I thought these guys were going to talk about heroin. Get fucked yeah. up and eat meat. <laughs> They'll eat meat. <laughs> yes, I'm sure. I'm sure. That's, this is, um, that's fascinating, though, that you actually still taste it and still... It's almost like if you're a heroin addict, heroin addict just scratching the skin with the needle. We don't penetrate. Yeah, you know, the, you know, they don't recommend that. No, my, you know, my therapist and the people at rehab do not recommend that I taste wine and spit it. I'm but, sure they yeah. don't. But I have friends. Again, I, I know a lot of sommeliers, and even I, I, I know winemakers. Some of the f- most famous winemakers in the world I've met in Burgundy at an AA meeting that are completely sober. Wow. Because they wanted to break this cycle of my great-grandfather was an alcoholic, mm-hmm. abusive person. My grandfather was an alcoholic, abusive person. My father was an alcoholic, abusive person. And I didn't want to take over this thousand-year-old winery, wow. the legacy of my family. I didn't want to work here. And I'm sure, like, you know, with all the epigenetic stuff, if you don't drink when your kids are young, like, there might be a thing where you can stop the passing of the gene, you know? But you did Sober you October. It. How'd you do? Fine. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I did. <laughs> didn't love it. No. How was the relapse? This, sobriety wasn't. This was a very crazy Sober October because we added this insane fitness challenge. So I was literally working out between three and a half to five and a half. One day, six and a half hours in a Whoa. day. Yeah, it was insane. One day I did five and a half hours and I did another hour at night. Six and a half hours in the day. It was, we were trying to kill each other to see who could get the most points. We had a fitness tracker. We wore this uh, heart rate monitor. Right, right, yeah, I heard that. application <laughs> would score up the amount of points you would get. If who won? In, I won. That's the belt right there. <laughs> awesome. If you get uh, 70% of your max heart rate, you get three points per minute. This is how crazy it got. 70% of your max heart rate is three points per minute. 80% and above your max heart rate is four points per minute. One day, I got 1,000 points. So just think about that. Think about how many minutes you have to exercise at 80% of your max heart rate to get 1,000 fucking points. So you think sober help you with performance or recuperation? I think I was on drugs the entire time. This is what I think. I think I was on the endorphins that come from long-range cardio. There's, there's, there's a, what I was calling the don't, I don't give a fuck drug. There's you get this this feeling when you do car like everybody always talked about runners high and I never really experienced it even though I had worked out really hard my whole life I'd never been into like long range cardio I'd never done hours and hours of the same activity just droning on you know either on a bike or running I'd never really done that I'd run hills for the most part and I'm sure it benefited me and it made me made me relaxed. But it's at a totally different level when you're doing it for three and a half hours, four hours a day. It's you, true survival mechanism that kicks in. It's that, but it's also you feel wonderful. You, you have zero anxiety. And you're still benefiting from that? Like, no, or? no. That's what's interesting. Like uh, I've been out of the house for uh, a week now because of the fires. So uh, we've been running around and the kids aren't in school. So they're here hanging out with me. And they, they you know, we, we haven't had a chance to 
to get our stuff together. It's it's been very stressful. So I haven't really been working out much. I've only worked out like once or twice this week. So I have more stress. I feel like a little bit more tense, a little bit more. Take a deep breath, calm down. During October, I had none of that. None of that. I felt great. I felt like I was like if you could take how I feel and put it in a pill form and give it to people. Everyone would be hooked on it because you feel fantastic. And I never understood that. I, I would see these people running every day, and I thought they were just exercise fanatics. Like they just want to be leaner or they want to just keep – maybe they're obsessed. Body obsessed, with, yeah. Yeah, maybe that's what it was. But I think they're drug addicts. They're natural drug addicts, but in a very positive way. I shouldn't call it drug addicts. Endorphin junkies. That's what they are. Because, it, it makes and, sense, too, that you would – every cycle – in nature, it's like feast and famine. It's like running and resting. You know, if you follow, if you're a hunter-gatherer, you don't hunt every day. You know, you follow a cycle. So for, for a month, you'll hunt, you'll drag back the meat, the meat home, you'll eat a lot, and then after the next month, there's, you'll be quiet, you'll eat less, and then the next month. So there's very little exercise program out there that look at it like that. But if you were to look at it over a year, maybe you'd see it like, I, I see no, October is more quiet. I'll do my, my month in October. November will be quiet, busy with other things. After that, I'll go back to it in December. It's better for the soul, too. You don't have this obsession looming over you that you have to do it tomorrow morning and the night and like you know well my take on it was a little bit different my take on it is that everyone's anxiety levels and all the different stress and all the, th the things we deal with a lot of it is because your body has c capabilities and you're you're not using even a small percentage of those capabilities so it's always like what are we doing we're we going we're gonna go we're gonna go okay huh? and we're in traffic you're moving quickly so you're constantly aware of all these cars around you and there's all the stress and there's very little physical release that the body takes part in and for most people i mean the, the great percentage of our population lives a sedentary lifestyle they sit in their cars until they get to the office they sit in their office until they get home they sit in front of the tv till they go to sleep this is a giant percentage of our population yeah, whatever, the whatever the number is yeah whatever it's very normal and occasionally they work out and when they do it's a struggle when you force the body into rigorous exercise on a constant basis your body's all the needs and uh, of the this capacity the capabilities that it has all those needs are satisfied so what i found is incredibly low anxiety levels and i didn't think i had anxiety i'm not an anxious person to the point where i thought about taking medication for anxiety like i'm nervous or but i didn't i didn't know how anxiety free i could be until i did this exercise program for a month see i found that in sobriety the anxiety i was i, I suffered and fred suffered from anxiety our whole careers every day 200 300 people are coming for dinner at my you know it's Painful. always there in my head. Crippling. Yes. Is there staff? Yes. There's 300 people coming. It never goes away. There's always people coming for dinner. It's, I'm Are they happy? I'm throwing 400 yes. people every night. But, you know, when I was drinking, that would just keep the stress going. Now I'm fine. It's gone. That's you know, There's this magic number I kept on hearing in rehab and I kept on hearing through therapy. Four months? 16 weeks, man. 16 weeks. And I was like, yeah, shut up, fuck you know, what's this fucking guy is always telling me about these 16 weeks? They're like, 16 weeks, man. Watch 16 weeks. The morning, 16 weeks. That morning. I woke up that morning and my phone said, oh, 16 weeks. And I had this peace and this joy and this childhood innocence that I hadn't had in years. 
on the day, 16 weeks, not because I'd been premeditating it in my head and I was looking forward to the 16 weeks. I didn't believe in it. But it was literally 16 weeks of sobriety that brought this. I was clear. The, the, the drain uh, is clogged. That had no problem. Um, I'll be there in half an hour. Yeah. Like, as it should be. Wow. You know? The, the yeah. fridges don't work. The lights are out in the restaurant and okay. five tables are unhappy. I'm, I'm coming down. Do you think that some of the anxiety was just your body responding to the fact that you were poisoning it all Correct. the time? Correct. No, I also think it's the yeah. psyche creating reasons for you to drink. Your mind is telling you, you're stressed. I have a quick remedy for it. Yeah. Why don't you try drinking? Sense. That makes sense. And when you feel this fueling. way, usually what's your go-to? I'd be like, I could taste sometimes when I'd fall into stressful situations at the restaurant, three tables I don't like, couple of criminal elements behaving badly at one table, you know, maybe on the border of lacking respect to their waitress, I might have to get involved, and I could almost taste Chardonnay in my salivary glands. Yeah, your brain mm. still plays the trick on my you. My brain That's... was making me high before the high. I, I was like, why do I taste Chablis in my mouth? I think it's the same with sugar addiction, too, you know, where people eat you eat sugar, lots of carbs, mostly carbs, mm. then you're like, oh man, I can't, I have to go for three hours without eating. I have to bring something sweet with me because I'm going to get shaky. And then you have, it's, it's like you're feeding basically, I don't know if it's your gut biome that like changes, but you're like feeding a monster inside of you. You're not feeding Fred or David. You're like feeding something else, you know, like you're planning a weekend at the cottage. You're like, the kids are going to be loud. I'm going to have to bring like two more bottles of wine, you know, wow. and I have to make sure that the wine is cold and have to make sure we have that. Or like you have to, you know, I have friends like that. I have to make sure I have like four granola bars because I have to eat all the time. And you know mm -hmm. that yeah. if you don't have breakfast, you have like a quick coffee. You can go till like four or five in the afternoon and not shaking and getting cold and sweaty, yeah. you know. Well, especially if you have a good, healthy diet, if your body's not like sugar, sugar dependent. I think it's funny, eh? Every time, you know, sometimes we fall off the wagon and stuff. Now it's pretty solid for a few years. I think that two weeks of drinking more water, having walks, and not eating ice cream and fries, and two weeks of home-cooked meals and water, cutting down on coffee, because that too will fuck with your anxiety, you know? Sure. We noticed, dude, like both of us. All, all of disease, like so many diseases are based simply on overconsumption. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just period. Overconsumption well, of cigarettes, overconsumption of alcohol, overconsumption of sugar, overconsumption of meat, carbs, like mm -hmm. restriction brings clarity. Yes. And restriction diets are one of the best remedies for people with autoimmune diseases. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, yeah, they, yeah. They cut down almost everything out of your – like one of the things that people are doing today that's very popular, I keep talking about this, unfortunately, is the carnivore diet. Because um, uh, Jordan Peterson made it very popular when he was on the podcast. It's really fascinating. There's a spike. If you look at the Google search results yeah. for carnivore diet, it's July of 2018. It goes like this. Takes off because that's the day that Jordan was on the podcast. So he's on the podcast, you know, fucking whatever amount of millions of people listen and Steak, watched salt, it. salt, and water. And because of his ranting and raving about the positive benefits that he's experienced. So... I got on the carnivore diet, people really got into it. So I got into it as well. Like, what is it about this? So I started consulting a lot of actual nutrition experts and scientists. And what they believe is what's going on is calorie restriction. That because of the fact that you're only, Jordan is only eating steak with salt and drinking water. That is all he's consuming, and he feels fantastic and, because and his calories. And not calories, lean steak. 
No, Re- real fatty. steak. Yes, fatty. So then you Rib can't eyes. eat too much because you have the fat. Yes. You're, you're feeling full. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. That fat is important. Yeah, and because of this, quite a few autoimmune issues that he had went away. He was having receding gums. That went away. Uh, he uh, was having severe depression and anxiety and all these different issues. That went away. You Lost know, a tremendous amount of weight. His body leaned up. And sci- the scientists that I've talked about... You know, this is a very new thing for people to embark on this and, and do it on in mass scale because quite a few people doing it. What they're attributing it to is the calorie restriction, is that because of the fact that you're, you really can't eat that much steak, if you eat a steak, you know, it might be a 1,000 calories, whereas if you mean a full, big, thick steak, a lots of A 1,000 calories of steak is a lot of steak. Right. Yeah. But, I mean, he might be eating two of those in a day. Whereas if you're eating French fries and soda, empty and calories, you're you're getting or a shake way more here, than that. Like, yeah. Way more than that. Like, what do you think uh, an 18 ounce ribeye is? If you had to guess calorically, 11, 18, 600, 800, 800. Depends if you have like the end of the yeah. rack, you know. Okay, so let's let's just get crazy and let's call it 700. It's so, probably like a 1700 calories a day. Yeah, because he's not putting cream in the right. coffee. Yeah. He's not having a Seven, that's nothing. that's when yeah. water and when, steak. When I started eating no gluten, right? It's fully diagnosed, right? I'm not making this up. I start. I stopped eating gluten. He gets flack every day. What does that mean? Everybody gets crazy about the gluten. No, thing. he is. They don't like, want to hear it. Yeah. People don't want to hear it. We don't want to hear like what I said. But what does it mean? I don't eat gluten. <laughs> smoking smoking cigarettes. cigarettes. Like come on. No, but what does it mean? No gluten. It means that you don't go to you don't no drive through. You no slip. Right. There's no options out there in the fast food world there's right. no so i have to plan my day so mm-hmm. i eat like i'll eat a piece of meat for breakfast with or eggs or whatever and then i won't eat until i show up at work or at home later and eat so it's what you've excluded that counts yes it's not that the steak is so good for you right is that you're not eating all this processed food anymore because you can't eat it anymore. That's what the scientists are saying. But the people that are pro-meat, it's really fascinating because they're, they're just as culty as the vegans are. The people that are the, the real uh, pro-carnivore diets, they want you to think that it's the meat that's healing them, the meat that's helping them, the meat that's making them lean. The meat, well, it's not hurting you. I mean, it's, it's nutritious. I mean, there's a lot of real nutrients in red meat. And this is also a problem with a lot of studies that people have that a lot of vegans love to cite about heart attacks, strokes, cancer in relationship to meat. These epidemiology studies that would, they're, they're essentially is they're saying, look, when you look at people that eat meat five days a week, these are the people that have higher instances of cancer, higher instances of diabetes, all these different things. But what they're not taking into consideration is they're not just eating meat. They're usually eating a cheeseburger with fries and a soda, and there's all this and sugar and Two gimlets before and dinner. And, all this yeah. bullshit that's, that's involved with the meat. There's not any studies that show that people who eat a Only grass-fed, meat and water. Uh, yeah, 12-ounce grass. Yeah fed steak with a, a good plate of sautéed spinach and olive oil and garlic that these people are getting cancer. I'm sure there's no data on that. There's nothing. You yeah. can't make a nutritional study. Right. It's impossible. People fundamentally lie. So you cannot have people, you cannot say like, this is cocoa fat and beef tenderloin. I'm going to give you a weak portion. You go home. Then you come to report. We do blood tests. You get anecdotal evidence from people. 
They talk about their own personal diet, but yeah, it's 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 very difficult, and it's also very ideologically based. I mean, um, whether it's on one side with the vegans or the other side with the carnivore diet people, I find the same psychological characteristics in both groups. They want to convert people. They want to proselytize. They want people to think that their way is the right way, and they they are not honest about health issues that they're having. You should make like a. A conference on a deserted island, you know, in a rich man's <laughs> castle, like a Bruce Lee movie, and you, you invite the vegans on one side, and you don't tell them you're also inviting the other, you know? And right. then both groups, you just have like a kumite. Well, both groups <laughs> think the other group is going to drop dead any second now. Oh, well, the thing. proof is in the pudding. If somebody is on your podcast to talk about eating meat, he's alive and he's not dead, so it works. <laughs> you know, like, why look any further? Well, who knows how long they're going to last. Well, none of us are getting out of this alive. No, that's for sure. When it comes to meat, um, do you guys prefer a grass-fed beef or do you like uh, corn-fed? Because I, I had this discussion with Tony, and he was telling me that he actually liked corn-fed beef. He's like, it's a fattier. There's, there's, there's two schools of thought, and then there's two schools of what is quality beef. Right. right? So one school would say, yeah, quality beef is organic animal, pasture-raised, eating grass, the flavor is different, it's not as tender, but it is high-quality beef. Okay, then the other, of course, is, you know, a cow, USDA Prime, corn-fed, incredible marbling, ridiculous fat content, restricted motion. Uh, I'd say a lesser-quality beef. Okay, than than the other. But they all start grass-fed, though. Eating-wise... They're all pastured at first. Eating-wise, you know, gram for, pound for pound, the corn-fed steak will be more delicious, okay, for some people. And then for some people, the other one will be. In my, my mind, the grass-fed, organic, pasture beef with its different flavor for me as a higher quality animal i i prefer that taste correct i feel it's a richer taste it's a denser darker meat more the iron taste yeah i, I just like it better and i i do like a corn-fed steak i do like but it. there is but in the in the general public the steak eating public that come to restaurants encounter more corn-fed beef that and they their first Judge of character to the quality of that meat is marbling, its tenderness. Tendering. It's yeah. tenderness. It's yes. marbling. It's yeah. not tender. It's not tender. That's the reoccurring thing that we fight with every day at Joe Beef. Why don't they just Juicy eat and tender. Just eat a 16-ounce foie gras. <laughs> I know. If they just <laughs> want tender. I, I mean, know. I mean, what are they looking for? Tender. You can also it's have like, tender. Don't your teeth work? When we get a steak yeah, set exactly. back, it'll be because... It's too tough? Yeah, or no, exactly. It's not I would usually go to this steakhouse and it's t- more tender because you're bring, you're serving a grass-fed steak. Serving a grass-fed a grass-fed steak uh, that's not as marbled as it's non-organic. Well, it's an it's an animal that's steak. healthy. But you can also have It's an upgrade it's, valid. It's like it, the, it's like the natural wine versus conventional wine fight, right, that mm, we're having, you know. Yeah. yeah, but it's also you're we're calling it binary. Now it's like it's only corn or it's only grass. No, I think the solution is maybe a little bit of corn, a little bit of barley, but mostly grass-fed, you know? 
a brief finish in like quality grains. Why not? And then there's you a know? whole other point. Like I'd like to raise not giant feedlot. I like to sell beef uh, in my restaurant that comes from very close to my restaurant. You know, yeah. When we opened Joe Beef at the beginning, when that first book, the first book was written, uh, beef was a problem back then. You know, local beef was kind of difficult, and you know, we were buying beef from larger wholesalers, and we, if we didn't know how to read the barcodes on the boxes, they would say it was Canadian beef, but it, it might not Australia. be Canadian beef. It might be. North, you know, Northern mm. USA beef, but we didn't know because only a professional could read the barcode, but they were saying it was Canadian. But one day I had a professional come into the restaurant and he said, no, actually this beef is, yeah, from a company with investitures in Canada, but this is from Western Australia. And I said, I don't want to serve anything in my restaurant from Western Australia. That's super far. <laughs> like, I, like yeah. you know, just like remove beef from the menu or seek alternatives. Uh, but it's a business that's complex because there's pastures and feedlots, slaughterhouse and packers, right? Mm. And, and it's not like a, you, you, we have lambs. Got a baby lamb that come from the parent's lamb and then they farm, they raise the lamb and they bring it to the slaughterhouse themselves and then we get a lamb. Beef is like... You can get it's like tracing bourbons, you know. It's like trading and brokerage and stuff, mm. and we're not. It's the most sketchy item on a restaurant menu. Like I know that I bought lamb from you, and I know I bought rabbit from you know Beatrice, and I know I got goat cheese from this family, and all of the products in my restaurant. I know exactly the farm, uh, the farmer. Beef is always dicey because beef always goes to the packer. Beef always goes to the distributor. Beef, you know, to and the general public only really eats two cuts of beef in restaurants. You know, three cuts: the tenderloin, the the the, the, the what do you call it in English? The entrecote. Yeah, the loins. The, the loins, loins the tenderloin. and the rib, right? That's what people eat. But and the, the hamburgers. The beefs are not that. You know, there's two big humps, and there's two big shoulders, and there's a lot of braise. So, you know, it's uh, it's difficult. Listen, Did you guys we... see that uh, documentary on steak? Yeah, yeah, we yeah, were in it. We were in it. That's right. That's yeah. right. You were in it, right? Yeah. What did, what did you think of that? And their conclusions and mm. what was the conclusion? Well, just the, what they basically were saying that Peter Luger's Steakhouse in Brooklyn is the greatest steak in the world. That it's was USDA the, prime yeah. corn-fed for taste. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it's good. It's a good restaurant. Good, <laughs> yeah. good story. Good history. Very, great very restaurant. Good steak. Yeah. I, I ate there just a few months ago. It's yeah. very good. Yeah, very good. Yeah, but. Um, but again, it, it's a subjective thing, right? The, the flavor in terms of like what you actually look for. And they, as they were talking about, like your customers saying they're accustomed to a certain type of meat. Like they were saying that their customers are accustomed to this. They're not interested in grass-fed oh, anything. Yeah, but no, I understand that. You yeah. know, they've been doing that for a long time and yes. grading that beef that way. And I don't think they should change ever, not based on anything, right? No, well, it's a great place where you get consistency. I mean, you go there, you get this fantastic steak. It's... I mean, it's so old worldy too. When you get in there, that I mean, how long has Peter Luger's been around for? God, forever, forever. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, 120 years. Or? Something, something insane like that. And yeah. They get the Moishes is like that in Montreal. It's a very old steak restaurant. Moishes is a famous restaurant in Montreal, and they, you know, they do have their beef program, and they should not change because there's new conversations happening. He knows what he's doing, Lenny Leiter, right. and he should do. You know, keep on doing that. In a small restaurant, let's say that Fred marginal characters like Fred and I own, I always see it like 
it's not a those restaurants maybe are public places. Uh, my restaurant is my restaurant, of which I want to do what I want in. Right? Mm, it's not. Yeah. It's not at the. I don't. We don't listen so much to the public. You know, I I, I serve at my pleasure, not. You know, the, it's not the customer's always right. It's the customer's often wrong, and I'm always right. You know, because <laughs> we can do salmon. I play the music I want to, and, and I, we serve the food we want to, and I serve the wines we want to. And if you don't like it, you don't have to come. It's our, you know, but it's this it restaurant is, is for us. Well, that's one of the things that I learned from watching Bourdain's original show, the No Reservation show, um, and that it changed my opinion on things because I, I didn't have a strong opinion on food before that, other than that I really liked it. <laughs> I didn't think of it as an art form. And watching his show and seeing the passion, uh, his his appreciation for food and for the way it's the way it's grown and brought to table and the production of it and and then ultimately the flavor of it and the taste and and his admiration for chefs and and you guys as well, um, his his adver- his admiration for it and his his appreciation for the way everything's put together made me realize like oh this is an art form. It's a craft. And, and you know, Tony did something. Tony was the most faithful, most like, we were so lucky to be on that ship with him, you know, that he took us aboard. And you could see he had the same apprenticeship we did, you know, like suffering and like big bistro kitchens and stuff. And you think about it, the guy, he didn't make the promise to himself that when he'd get rich and famous, he was going to buy a big house and not talk to people. He helped every cook. Not walk out of the kitchen and get famous, but get a voice, you know? Well, even yes. outside and, of the and, television show, the work he did in private is massive. And not look like a dirty guy that makes the pasta in the back, you know? Right. All of a sudden, it's like, yeah, the, the manager in the suit and the owners, but who's the guy in the back, Yeah, you know? No, he had appreciation for everybody, and he had a real passion for the process. Yeah, and the marginal character is, you know, you, there's lots of commercial restaurants in the city of Montreal and any given city of, that he went to. He's able to isolate, let's say, the marginal characters in every city that, you know, we're, you know, we're historically bound, kind of. Fred and I practice a weird faction of French cooking called cuisine bourgeoise, and only kind of Tony and a handful of other guys can look at what we do and go, oh, those fuckers, they're, they're up to that. No he, one's he up to that. He curated, <laughs> like, know, like, his crew You guys are into that, really. He goes, know? you guys are the only people, like, the last of the Mohicans that do this kind of food. And we know, yeah, no, we can't stop. We got to keep on. What a, like, what a great guy to get it, too. <laughs> yeah, because nobody does, right? Barely, right? Nobody understands, like, you know, the, the rabbit hole we're down. Tony did. Yeah, yeah the cognoscente. Yeah, he, uh, I mean, he, he really did... Uh, deeply influenced my appreciation for food the way I think about it and again treating it as an art form which I just thought it was just delicious I didn't think of it as like oh these guys are making temporary art they're making art that you're gonna you're gonna enjoy now you know and you 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 can't put it on film I mean you can but you're, you're not gonna get it all you're just gonna want to go out and experience it yeah ultimately food is you can't we go and do like we were asked to do like demonstrations you know you can go on a big stage just 5,000 people to talk about food or make like 
little crackers with smoked salmon on stage. Food is not fit for a stage. No. Food is for a table for us to enjoy, you know, yeah. with a fork, a knife. We talk about it. Yeah. We go hunting. That's, that's what food is. People offer us food shows all the time. And I mean, I can't. It doesn't work. You and know? it's like, what's the concept? Yeah. Well, you guys can be in a pickup truck and you go and <laughs> visit your suppliers and maybe you have a bottle of wine with them after. I was like, dude, like we worked hard not to copy our, our like fellow you know, culinarians. Yeah, you look at and, our food, and, it's like it's ours. It's TV not. producers are out there just like blatantly proposing the previous show to you again, you know? Yes. Well, that's one of the things right after Anthony died, uh, there was uh, some talk about uh, Gordon Ramsay doing <laughs> some very similar show, and the outcry against it was enormous. I mean, he was just getting assaulted online. I mean, it was, it was crazy. The, the, I, the, everybody that I was talking to, our, our agent who, did our, who represents us for our book, and she was saying, like, the, it was the all, same, uh, all the big uh, production companies, like, are being berated by people pitching who's going to be the next Tony, right? I, oh. You know, I don't want to say that, but one of the character, and, and you guys, and you could take over. Yeah, you could do it. Because you guys, you know the way he went in West Virginia? And it wasn't like Republican, uh, Democrat. Like, he went to places. And he's like, yeah, sure, I have my views, but let's break bread, you know? And I always said that, that, like, all our countries are divided on issues, but there's nobody that overlaps them with a coherent vision. Everybody loves each other when there's delicious food on the table, man. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know? And guys like you with, like... clear view and a rational and science-based and evidence-based view on things and like Tony just have such a voice now in our countries that it's I could see you doing a food show I love food but I I, I don't I'll never do a a food show I I just can't imagine no because you ask good questions I, I like doing shows I mean I love having guys like you on and talking about food but it takes a special type of person to to want to travel 300 days a year, you know, and that's essentially what Tony was doing. And I think that has a massive toll. Um, it, it takes a massive toll on your body. It takes a massive toll on your psyche. I, I your don't family. Everything. Yes, it's not healthy. I don't, There's not enough melatonin or like CBD or like no, it's not cleanses to no. help you with that. I travel more than enough already, and I've cut my traveling way back. I'm down to only 10 UFCs a year now, and I do you know, comedy around that and stand-up comedy. But I, I, I consciously make the effort to travel much less uh, because I just don't think it's good. I just don't think it's good for you. And, um, and also that road life, you know, the, the drinking and all that other stuff that comes with it, that accentuates all the problems that you have with, uh, with travel. And I think that's also... One of the things that uh, was was dragging Tony down when he would talk about the sadness and the loneliness of uh, being on the road. I can't help but, from knowing him and partying with him, I can't help but have thought that a lot of that was probably accentuated by the alcohol consumption. And you know, and you guys could speak sure. to that now that you're 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 clean and you're you're not experiencing the, those rugged hangovers every morning. I was always worried for Tony that way. Just that you know. That hotel living, yeah. planes, trains, and automobiles constantly. And it wasn't like for a year. It was like, hey, like it's 12 a, years. It's a Matt. sad life eh, to watch river monsters at 11 in the morning burping Jameson. And I'm re- referring to many occasions in our lives where you're like, you're traveling in a hotel room and 
you are in a beautiful place, but like you just you feel weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've uh, I've taken steps to mitigate some of that. One of the big ones is I travel with friends. Um, I bring really good comics to work with me on the road, so that when I'm in these cities, I'm in these cities with friends, and we just go. It's like they're family, so we we go. We'll go eat together. We'll go work out together, you know, and try to keep the unhealthy shit to a minimum. Plus, I'm more of a marijuana enthusiast than I am a, a drinker anyway. Hey, it's legal in Quebec now. We have yes, stores. Yes, the entire country. Canada is way yeah, ahead yeah, yeah. of America there. Quebec, as usual, we got a little bit the special treatment. Yeah. Does Everywhere it have to else? be in French? And, well, on top of it, yeah. You, you, you can't grow. <laughs> What do you call it? In, in, in Cannabis. Cannabis. Ah. You can't grow? Can't grow. No. And no. you have to only consume the government's uh, People stash. are going to grow anyway. Uh, I'm not worried about that. The government's stash. So you know what they did, right? Yeah, it's like, uh, you know, On we the... have a monopoly liquor board. Mm-hmm. So we have like stores. Liquor commission. Liquor commission. Yes. Now we have the cannabis commission. So what they did, <laughs> it got legal on October 17th at midnight. The stores were opening October 17th at 10 in the morning. The cops were giving tickets to people smoking weed <laughs> during that little layover time because they knew that there's, it, it was impossible. They bought it legally. So some people got ticketed for smoking illegal weed. In the lineup well, waiting for legal weed. <laughs> oh, God. What a bunch of assholes. Yeah. Hey, we just drank the Kool-Aid on that one, I think. You know? But it's good. We'll put more money into Medicare. Yeah. Well, I think it'll ultimately lead to relaxing of people's opinions and ideas about marijuana and what it is. But I also think that marijuana, just like alcohol, can be used as a crutch and it could eventually overcome your life. I like it, but I like it, I like it uh, every now and again, you know. And one of the things that came out of last year's Sober October was taking a whole month off of it, realizing that, A, I, I don't need it. I can, I can function fine without it. But it made me more apprehensive about regular use. Like instead of using it every day, I'll use it a day a week or two days a week or something like that. And I, and I appreciate it more when it does happen. When I, when I do get high with my friends, you know, on Friday night or something like that, it's like it means something. It, like we're, we're, it's almost like a sacrament. Like we're experiencing a little moment together and, and just having fun. That's the proof, though, what you just said is like the proof that you don't have addiction issues, you see. I couldn't be able to prove that I smoked marijuana responsibly once in my life, that I drank alcohol once in my life, that, you know, that I did drugs responsibly. So right. I'm fascinated. I brought some, some of our cooks that were here in L.A. with us to a restaurant, and we had a beautiful dinner, and I ordered them a bottle of wine, and they barely finished it. And I didn't understand. <laughs> The first and only I was like, bottle of wine. I was like... Do you guys want more? I was like, they could have, I would have paid for nine. Right. Like, right. And they had one. And I, I was just sitting there. I told Fred, I go, what the f- I don't really. What is it like to be in that environment and watching people glass over? Like, see, they see the booze hit them. They don't drunk get drunk. We, we, used to, we say that all the time. We used to think that like everybody, everybody, was, everybody drunk. was smashed. No. It was only me. <laughs> <laughs> It's like the, the beer goggles. Right, right, you know, right. You, wear you, them two ways. you were in it with everybody I else. I realize now that like everybody at the restaurants generally, like nine out of ten times, drink quite responsibly. <laughs> uh, well, they must. Know? Otherwise, it would be just accidents everywhere and violence everywhere you turn. Right, yeah. And I realize a lot of the people that I'm friends with drink responsibly. They can have a glass of wine with lunch. Uh, if, if me and Fred opened a bottle of wine at lunch... We'd, we'd go till 10.30 till we couldn't anymore, and then that was it, you know? 
we look what we did last time we came to LA we did uh, Hell's Kitchen okay we're judged for a show on uh, ostriches it was disgusting ostriches yeah ostriches. because you know they I've cook had an ostrich like, burger before meat. yeah but Fuddruckers serves ostrich burger it's actually delicious it's really bloody right the yeah, meat and rare. there's that thing for uh, cooking shows like that it's um, regulated by the gaming commission so they have to keep the camera rolling and they're not allowed to touch the dishes because they're the object of the competition ah. so you take your break you go to the green room you wait they're cleaning up the kitchen now the food sits on the pass there like for two hours and you come back you sit at a table and there's like rare ostrich tenderloin that's been sitting for two hours yeah and they, two they hours just post, post cook yeah yeah that's and ridiculous the, and you you have to like judge like wait a minute you, you're judging food that was cooked two hours ago yeah. tv that's so fucking stupid and, and, and i felt like again that's a, that's insulting for for guys like you yeah. No, but the thing is, like, if I felt so bad because there's people who put, like, a job on hold. They left their kids at home. They just like, yeah. I made it. I'm in the casting. I was selected, you know, uh, to be part of, of Hell Kitchen. And, and then we say something. And then no, we Gordon's going to hate us right now, right? No, the show's great. But the, <laughs> I felt like I felt sad. <laughs> yeah. But that, all that to say that whenever we came, we stayed by the, the airport, you know. We, we stayed at... Uh, just so you can get One. out of there quick. Yeah, Frozen then, margaritas at the hotel bar, man. man. <laughs> 11 o'clock. We're in the Whirlpool at the Radisson, Radisson Airport, Hotel. Airport. Like, it's yeah. sad, man. Having cocktails mm. at the Encounters. That hotel life can be fucking sad, man. <laughs> I know. I get it. It's like, And now we're like completely not drinking. They got us a room. And we're staying at the Chateau. And... I never did. I never thought I'd stay there. I would really love to get drunk at the Chateau Marmont. Though. You did once, but not this yeah. time. But yeah, that's like a spot. You know, I've been here forever. I've never even gone in that building. It's beautiful. Maybe I did once. I might have. I think I was there once for like a TV thing that I had to do, like a, one of those party things in like the nineties. I think I went once. But it's funny because there's like really like you know like B list. Hollywood stars like hanging out at the pool, trying drinking cool. champagne cocktails, trying to be cool, <laughs> smoking blunts, and trying well, to pick up girls. Tony used to stay. He used yeah. to get a villa there when he was writing. He used to stay there. He told me he loved it. He just loved everything about the feel of it, the whole the the, the dirtiness. The of it. We stayed at the Raleigh Hotel with him in Miami. He loved that place too. He likes dirty spots. Oh, the Raleigh was fun. Tony, that, that's how Tony was. You know, he's like. Guys, uh, I like old food like you do. What if we do uh, a dinner based on like uh, old transatlantic ship, mm. like boats, like dining room, you know? Yeah. Like. So we say, oh, yeah, sure. He gets uh, Eric repaired and he'll blue a bunch of guys. He's like, oh, I'll put you up at the Raleigh. We're just going to do that one dinner, but we're just going to hang out for a week after, you know? And we're in the pool and the pool every sneaking day cigarettes. Otavia was like there with the kid in a rash guard all the time. We went to uh, <laughs> Cyborg. Roberto Abreu, mm -hmm. we went to school there, and I was just, like, starting fucking killer. Yeah, yeah. yeah he's awesome. a monster. How long have you been doing jiu-jitsu now? I did it for a year solid, and I stopped because uh, I had a back surgery. Oh, discs? Yeah, yeah. What, yeah. What's, uh, what's going on? It's totally fixed, but um, I keep... Fixed how so? Surgery. What did you have wrong? Uh, it was um, a stenose. It was stenosis, like, so yeah. shortening of the disc. Yeah, and then yeah. compression, and then they they went in and chipped some parts out. Mm -hmm. In and retrospect, I spoke to some rheumatologists, and it's interesting you're talking about like um, Jordan Peterson because the autoimmune thing can be everywhere, mm -hmm. right? And now the my doctor says like 
maybe celiac cause inflammation in yes. so many places. That's what I would say. And all that, like maybe the drinking too, like this inclination mm-hmm. towards abuse, you know, this inclination towards depression, this, you know, back problem. This, it's all related to that. And again, the proof is in the pudding. I don't eat bread. I don't eat sweets. Very little. I eat mostly meat, and I feel hundred times better. So the, I don't give a fuck if it's in my head. Fred's or not. also sober now. Four months, five months, yeah. five months. Well, so it works. I don't think that it's uh, in your head, but it's definitely been proven that all those foods cause inflammation. But I do think that jujitsu, in particular, is ruthless on your back I've because some, of the torsions. Yeah. And the, well, yeah. it's just. You know, big people on top of you, you're yanking them around, you're moving yeah. your back and very and very few people strengthen their back. That's yeah. a that's a big issue. And after we're done here, I'm gonna take you into my gym and I'm gonna show you some machines that I bought specifically to strengthen okay. my back. I've had some disc issues too, and the the doctors are pretty adamant about putting me uh under the knife. And uh I I just didn't like the idea of it. I've had many surgeries. I've had both my knees reconstructed. I know when you need surgery and when you don't. And the more I looked into it, the more I realized that there's doctors that they, they have a hammer, so everything is a nail. Yeah. Like, oh, that's a nail. Let me just fucking whack that thing. They're not like, oh, you're going to have to change your diet. You're going to have to lose some weight. You're going to have to strengthen yeah. all those muscles around your back. And if, if you do do that, I find that the results are superior in many cases. Yeah, it's a people. combination. Like yoga but works wonderfully fantastic. for Fantastic. Yoga. Decompression of the spine is, is critical because you're always compressing. You're always like, well, these chairs we're sitting in. These are chairs from a company called Fully, and they're called Capiscos, and these are ergonomic chairs. You notice we've been sitting in this place. It's two and a half hours into the podcast wow. now. We don't, our backs aren't hurting. Comfortable, beautiful yes, chair. Yes, yeah. they feel good, too. They're comfortable as like so. I knew there was a solution. How to find the solution? Luckily, this co- this company contacted me and sent us these chairs. This is what we needed. I tried a fucking shitload of chairs before that, but it was the same thing with exercises. I, I knew there was a solution. I had to figure out what it was. I tried decompression. I tried a bunch of different forms of decompression. I, I figured out the best ones. You know, I have those um, those things where you, uh, where you hang by your ankles yeah, 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 yeah. and those. Uh, what the fuck is the name of that company? Hooks? No. <laughs> the upside down thing? Yeah. God damn it. They're a sponsor of the podcast. Sex swings? Teeter. Teeter. Teeter, Teeter makes those, like, just relaxing in those. Hang- we have one back there. You c- clamp your ankles in. Just let that back just stretch out again. And then there's a bunch of different exercises that I do with yoga that stretch your back out as well. We're in a constant state of compression, right? Constant gravity. Constant pushing you down. And a guy like me, I'm always lifting weights, too. So I'm... You got these heavy kettlebells and everything's yeah. compression and pushing up and yeah. you gotta you gotta spend as much time lengthening as you do pushing down. And you also have to stretch everything out because the more your hamstrings are, are tight, it's gonna pull down on your back. A lot of people that have back pains, it's uh, c- connected Feet to having tight hamstrings. Yeah. I have a a theory too that like a lot of things starts in school, you know, because you look at kids I have two boys and one daughter, you know, Henry, Ivan, and Eleanor, and they, five, seven, nine, they can do monkey bars, pull-ups, muscle-ups, you know, like, they do judo, they play hockey, they're very active. But school, the way that physically a classroom is designed, is wrong. It's like putting them in a cast for the next 15 years. And then they're going to come out of high school, like I was, unable to climb a rope, unable to do monkey bars, unable to do anything. Right, and then 100%. they're going to go to more school, 
and sit down for more times. Yeah. You know, so they don't get enough physical activity. And not even close. No. And not even the education towards it. Not even the education nutrition. It's right. Yeah. And they get graded and evaluated on how well they listen in gym class. You know, which is completely insane. Yeah, it really is. I mean, it. it, It's just making them sit down for all that time during the day. We're just preparing them for some job that's going to be unnatural in the first place. Making good little taxpayers. And look, look at it too. This is a model of school that was based on like religious schools, you know, and and like old Catholic schools, let's say in Quebec. How did you keep them from like being distracted? You know, the ruler and the fingers. You go to the corner, the leather strap. Now we haven't changed the classroom, the schedule, and the curriculum barely, but there's no more straps. So, like, okay, we, we haven't changed anything. Like, it's normal that particularly little boys don't listen in school that well. We have to find a way. We, we have to redesign school from, like, the schedule, the design of the classroom, the hallways, the introduction. You know, like, we have to bring restaurants back into school, like I cafeteria and all that. Yeah. No, but, like, cafeterias and... I don't know if it's you that talked with Jeff Bridges about that because he's in the like school lunches thing. And the problem with school lunches is that if you subsidize half the kids, then you have a kid with like a, a badge here that says like poor, you know? Yeah. So the only way to do that, and I know some people are a bit anti-socialist, but you have to feed all the kids. I it's agree. like crucial. I mean, the idea that that's a problem. I mean, Jesus Christ, we're talking about food and, and also the sense of community that's established when everybody eats together. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna create this rift between students where you establish that one student is poorer than the other one. So it's going to fuck them up already. You know, it's going to already make them insecure. Plus, you have, re- you have the, the labor force with the kids. Yeah. Like, not to say that we're going to make the kids work, but it's going to be a learning experience, and people can take their turns preparing family meals yeah. inside of the school system. It's a valuable tool. And if it was done and handled with respect and appreciation, if they had classes, perhaps, that showed how important food is. I mean, maybe even show an episode of No Reservations or, you know, or <laughs> Parts Unknown and, you know, show how people can appreciate food and what food really is and then how great it would be. I mean, and also it, it would open their eyes to the possibility of food as a career, of, you know, of getting into the same position that you guys are in. I mean, this is something that's never discussed. I mean, when was the last time a kid was encouraged to become a chef? No. It's, a, it's like a stand-up comedian. You know, you never get encouraged to become a stand-up <laughs> comedian. They just call you a fuck-up and try to put you on drugs. It never comes out when they do <laughs> the look, survey. And- you know, 90% of our labor force inside the restaurants is, you could anybody who cooks inside the restaurants is someone who didn't work inside the traditional school system. Yeah. You know, we, we employ uh, dropouts. Yeah. Yeah. But brilliant. You know, we've, there's brilliant people on the team. They just, the school system did not work for them. Well, that's the same thing with both of my jobs, whether it's the UFC or whether it's stand up comedy. Everyone that I'm close with is a fuck up in the traditional sense. Like, we didn't, none of us fit in. There's very few people that get into stand up comedy that were thriving in some other career. It, most of us were extremely frustrated with traditional environments, and most of us didn't do well in school because we felt confined and just w- couldn't wait to get – I have nightmares about going back to school. Did you have ADD as a child? I'm sure I got it all. Whatever the fuck it is. Whatever it is that gives you energy, that makes you better at stuff, you know, I got that. You know, you, you, they, they'll call it a bad thing and say, like, you can't concentrate. Well, I'm fucking bored. You Give have to me harness something. it. 
Right, but give, treat give me something that I can concentrate on. Give me something that I actually enjoy. I got a lot of energy. It's not that there's something wrong with me. It's that I have no interest in what they're selling. And it's being sold by some underpaid, undermotivated person who really is just following some sort of a curriculum, and they have to do that because they want to keep their job. This is what kids are being subjected to all across the world in the most fertile time of their life in terms of their imagination, their creativity, and their free time. Yeah. They Frontal don't have cortex a, is a sponge. They're ready yes. to take everything. And like, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's just... And no one would ever say to some kid who's uh, cracking jokes in class and running around being a fool, no one would ever say, hey, you ever thought about being a comedian? Like, no one says that. Yeah. It just never comes up. But meanwhile, everybody loves comedians. People love to go see comedy, but nobody ever says to some fuck-up kid, hey, man, you might be a comic. You know, it just doesn't, doesn't come up. <laughs> They'll do the test, and like David was supposed to be a travel agent. <laughs> I was. I was supposed to be a golf pro. And Is one this of something my... in Canada? Yeah. You know, yeah. You're supposed to be a golf pro? Are you really yeah. good at golf? No. And then uh, according to the questionnaire, and one of my friends who flies planes uh, was supposed, I think, to be a you know, folly artist, make sounds of horses with coconuts and For stuff. For movies? Like- yeah, yeah. That's what, that's what they told them after the questionnaire. What the fuck kind of questionnaire yeah. do you guys have in Canada? The success yeah. of restaurant, though, you have to think, though, is due to a lot of very sad people that have gone through the academic process. I have a, a disproportionate amount of lawyers and professionals and people who wear suits that love to come to the restaurant and drink yeah. wine and let the dogs stop barking inside their heads because they're really <laughs> fucking miserable. Yeah. You know, when you spent yeah. your whole day in the 72nd floor of the IBM tower downtown in your cubicle punching data into graphs and taking a licking from your boss who's also a suit – just a constant. You can't state. wait to get to Joe Beef and you know, yeah. relax or. It's like the Michael loose. Douglas movie. There enough. Oh, st- what was that called? Yeah. Falling, Falling down. down. Falling yeah, down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, enough with is with Jello. <laughs> <laughs> what is enough? What does she do? Jiggly, you mean? No, 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 no. Enough is the movie with Jello where she uh, she avenges. Uh, some ex-boyfriend that like traumatizes her and she it's great I love those movies what <laughs> okay there's something about airplanes <laughs> I don't know if the the added the altitude in the plane but like stupid movies are great when you're in the sky nothing the last hit. two days I've discovered he's quite the movie buff <laughs> Not, yeah he loves the, Notting Hill he was like, that's a beautiful movie I was like what, what? I don't even know what that's about what's Notting Hill about that's a movie with Hugh Grant Oh Christ! I wouldn't. I can't remember what it's about. You know what I love? What? Dude? I love the night at the Roxbury. Start drinking again, man. Yeah. Something's happening yeah. to you. We Notting were, Hill, Julia we, Roberts, and Hugh Grant. It sucks. We were just. <laughs> you know, the chateau is right by the the Roxbury yes. where it was, and yeah. I couldn't wait to just get out of the car, go walk there, take a picture of it, and just like try to show. Like I sent the picture to everyone. Nobody reacted. Dude, it's the Roxbury. Mm. You see. <laughs> You saw that movie? Night at the Roxbury? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I saw that movie. And for me to travel there is like... Did you like that deal? movie? Did yeah. you like that movie? Yeah, I loved it. Really? Yeah. Mm. 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 Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Same reaction. Yeah. <laughs> what else is your favorite movie? <laughs> Alone in the Wilderness, Dick Pranicky. That's great. You saw that movie? The guy that whittles uh, 
hinges for his house in Alaska. So that's a no. must view. Uh, is it really? It's no. like once a year you watch. Really? Oh. Yeah. Alone in the Wilderness, Dick Prenicky. Can you bring that up on the thing? What is that? Do you it's, know this, Jamie? The guy runs away. Like, is this a Canadian thing? No, 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 no. They say Alaska. A guy who just moves and lives know, in the woods for the rest of his life. I is think it like how the French love Jerry Lewis? No, they play it on Vermont <laughs> PBS as a fundraiser every year. <laughs> wow. What are, this is it. So the guy and put a tripod it. and films himself, and he... he Carves everything you need, hunts everything. Oh, okay, okay, okay. I have, I did not know this guy's name. So I thought you were talking about a movie. This is like a documentary, almost. Well, self-made. Yeah. self-made. He literally gets yeah. dropped off there with an axe, and I, then he builds a house, and then he kills a goat, and then, you know. Yeah, I do remember this guy uh, in interviews that I, I think I probably saw on YouTube. But yeah, he builds his own house and log cabins and shit. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> this guy, yeah. Oh, that's like such a beautiful, like... Did you guys ever see that Vice piece about the guy who lives in the, the Arctic, Heinmo, Heinmo's Arctic Adventure? No, no. Fucking amazing, man. It's a, a Vice uh, guide to travel piece where this guy um, got a, a very small cabin in the Arctic in like the 1970s, and he's been there since. The only thing he's ever seen from 9-11 is some photographs. He had no idea what was happening when it happened. Um, he Does he still love Michael Jackson? I don't know. But this is it. Um, this, this guy lives alone uh, in uh, Alaska with his wife in the Arctic National Refuge. And uh, you have to get in with a float plane. And he just hunts caribou and uh, lives with his family. His uh, wife is uh, Inuit. And um, they, they have children together, and children leave and eventually went on to college. I mean, it's fucking crazy. One of their kids was two years old, died in a uh, canoe accident. The canoe fell over, and the Ugh. kid fell into the river. And they revisit the spot at the, the time of her birthday. And it's really intense. But this guy really believes that people are they're, they're happier and healthier when they live uh, a hunter-gatherer lifestyle. And caloric all, restriction. Look well, at that. Yeah, I mean, all he does is eat caribou. I mean, the guy is out there uh, eating caribou, and during the uh, time where they're filming this, his cabin uh, and his caribou stash gets attacked by a grizzly bear, and he shoots the grizzly bear on film. He chases it down in the night and blasts it. One of the grizzly bears had eaten one of his dogs. I mean, this motherfucker's out there living. But he, like, he's a very smart guy. He's not what you would think. When you think of someone like this, you think of someone who is some weird kind of inbred half-wit who's living up there. No, he's very intelligent, very Slightly introvert. Maybe, maybe introverted for sure. But he doesn't seem to have a hard time talking to people, so I don't know if he's introverted. But, I mean, he, he's definitely restricted his, uh, his access to dialogue. I mean, he's out there alone in the forest by himself, but he makes a very compelling point that there's a natural feeling that he gets from doing this where everything kind of falls into place. He's constantly getting exercise because he's hiking and chasing after these caribou, but that there's natural human reward systems that are in place in his DNA for hunting and gathering and cooking this food over an open fire and the way he lives. He just... He just thinks it's the way people really are designed to live. We're absolutely not meant to live piled on top of each other within, you know, uh, 10 you know, million of us in a square mile in the island of Manhattan. You know, yeah. it's absolutely. <clears throat> Do you remember when there was the floods in Manhattan? Yes. All the money in the world couldn't get you out. Right. You had to walk across the Brooklyn Bridge to leave Manhattan yeah. with everybody else. Yeah. 
you know? Yeah, and there was a wor- real worry because of climate change. That was going to be happening every year now. Mm. People were like, is this the new normal? I remember Shane Smith had some piece on Shane Vice. Shane had to walk out. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, Shane had to walk out. But he had some piece on Vice where they were detailing the inside of his uh, apartment building. Like the fucking thing was completely flooded, like six feet high in water. You know, and people were worried, worried like this is going to be what's happening on a regular basis now. Like this climate change thing has changed. I have a heightened sense of, you know, since of three kids, I it's something that I think about. It's something that I have ready. You know, I bought a generator. I have. Yeah. I check the batteries, the rechargeable batteries for all of the equipment that I have. I own solar panels. I own a, a duffel bag full of everything that I need to throw in the back of my pickup truck, grab my kids, and I know which way to drive away from the city to go to the cabin. Yeah, It's something I've planned just because I'm the ward of these small humans whom I love. Yeah. You know? It's funny. You, you talked about, like, restriction again, and and, and the thing just... I'm thinking of preparing, you know, and the most common thing that people prepare is food, you know, and they prepare cans and cans and cans of food. But still, they eat so much of that food that the best way to prepare, the best way to prepare would be to start to eat less and and learn how to live at 1,700 calories, you know, and learn how to live with the people around you because if you're going to spend like two months in a bunker or in a bug out location or whatever you're not some like asshole to your kids and your friends and the family and people with you one of the things that happens to people this is really fascinating when when disasters do strike is everyone gets a lot friendlier you know and this is one thing that i've experienced myself this week because uh when we got evacuated it was 2 30 in the morning on thursday and there was fire uh rocks throw from my house and I'm not talking a little bit of fire. I'm talking just hundreds of acres of fire. I mean, it was just roaring over. We started to see houses, ex- started seeing the gas lines explode, houses burst into flames, <clears throat> and it was right down the street. So we're seeing this, and uh, you know, we're, we're we're we got outside. We're in the driveway. The neighbors come over. Everyone's talking. What are you going to do? I, I go. We're getting the fuck out of here. And he's like, have they given the evacuation orders? I said, no, we haven't. But I go, it's right there, man. I go, we got to go. I go, if, it, if we're wrong and we come back and the house is still here, that's okay. But you want to get out of these things quickly because they can turn south quickly. But there's a sense of camaraderie and community that, that happens. And then quite a few of us all went to the same hotel, including uh, my friend Tom Segura and his wife and his family went to this hotel, too, with some of my friends from this neighborhood. We were all there huddled in together. And, but there was, there was an, people were a little extra friendly. There was a, and this is like a, there was the same kind of feeling after 9-11 when I was in New York City. There was people a little bit more friendly. We felt that during the ice age. storm back yeah. in the day. People were like assessing the street that we live on. And then they go, well, who's got a wood-burning stove? And they go, oh, Roger does. Come over. And then people would go to Roger's house. And all yeah. of a sudden, all these neighbors that just wave at each other were all at Roger's house by the wood-burning stove going back to the houses to get blankets, planning sleeping arrangements, planning food arrangements, and assessing each other, giving each other their personal space, and learning to how to speak to each other in a respective manner that we might have to do this for several days. Yeah. Do the best it built a of sense, it. Through tragedy, a sense of community was built somewhat or reinforced for a brief moment in time, yeah. which made going back to our regular lives on that street better. 
Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever read uh, Sebastian Younger's Tribe? No. no. It's a great book, and he kind of talks about that, about how, uh, in part, situations of extreme stress and when people are really pushed, um, those people bond together, and they find that these are the happiest times of their life. People that even go to war, they find that they miss the camaraderie of the bunker. They miss the, the, the camaraderie trenches. of being in the yeah. trenches. They miss the camaraderie of being together, huddled up, not knowing what's going to happen in the future, but c counting and depending upon each other for their very lives. That's a thing that happens in very, very, very busy kitchens. Yeah. Uh, you know, a bunch of no education guys out of cooking school working uh, a difficult restaurant line. You know, we're working six guys on yeah. six four burner stoves Struggle. every night. A difficult menu with a difficult chef and a very busy restaurant those 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 hours you know from six p m till ten p m at night like it's intimate it's intimate like you know it's like, like my nose you're, you're bending fight. over to get into the stove to get a chicken out I'm grabbing something out of the fridge my nose is in your butt your nose is in my butt uh, right. you know I, I need your knife you need my knife uh it's very, very, very close quarters. Often, like, some of my strongest relationships, some of his strongest relationships are, you know, the bond that I've built with guys that I've cooked on lines, whether in Europe or here, are unbreakable. You know, these guys got your back. Tony talked a lot about that, you know. Yeah, I think people are better off when they're struggling. Yeah. I really do. I mean, I think they're better off when they're, they're, they're you know, when life creates challenges. And there's there's things to overcome, and there's difficulties to get through, and there's real pressure involved in these, and there's physical activity involved in these pressures as well. Yeah, yeah it's like rowing on the galley, yeah, the yeah. centurion, <laughs> and the cat of nine tails looming over you. Well, all the years you guys have been in business now, what what do you look forward to now? Like, what what keeps you going now? You have this established restaurant, this amazing menu, and you know you have fans of your restaurant like myself. What what keeps you going? Tiny think, restaurant where David and I cook, you know. Like uh, you saw the movie The French Connection? Yes. You see when Gene Ackman's on the other side of the road, it's like freezing in New York, he's in a deli with a piece of pizza and a shitty coffee. He has little leather shoes on the icy pavement. And then the French gangsters are in the bistro and they're eating like snails and eclairs and like all the food that comes in the little crock pots on the cart at the table. If we could open a place like that for like 16 customers that we have the key only, we decide to open whenever we want, and we don't lose money. That's all. I, 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 like, I want to build with Fred a tiny little French restaurant that we do what we want at. 16 seats. Yeah. An, an art or, project. Or I, I can take a four or eight or close it or... Just a toy to just practice this skill that we've learned all of these years to do this very, very weird, old, forgotten food that's not cool, but that I adore. You like know, what, what are you like? What is in the back of your head that you don't bring to Joe Beef? Oh, you know, one that everybody would know, but to do a proper lamb wellington served for two people and a little trolley, to still bring out the 12 cheeses on the little trolley, to have a trolley just of digestif, you know, crepes, after dinner Suzette. alcohol, to do crepes table side, to do a duck flambe. for two with orange sauce table side for two. You saw with Tony, we went to the flambe 
place in Quebec City in the first show, in the first parts unknown. And it was wonderful, like little langoose, flambe, and like there were skills. Like we want to be able to like, this, this morning we'll do tartare and it'll be mixed table side and that's it, or Dover Souls. To really practice hospitality at the level that it used to be back in the day, to bring out the very old porcelain, very beautiful silver, not ostentatious way, just almost in like a kitschy romantic, uh, a kitschy romantic kind of nostalgic, nostalgic yeah. sense. What, you know, to build a restaurant from the 20s, you know, do that yeah. food, handwritten wow. menu, flowers on it, you know, like. Yeah, the appreciation that you guys have for it is very contagious. It really is. Dining is great. Like, you know, candlelit dining, you know, uh, it's, you know, heavy velvet, woodwork, silver trays, copper. Uh, there's a Hemingway-esque. Uh, who's the other big guy? It's, uh, Orson Welles. Did you ever see those mm-hmm. Orson Welles interviews at the Hotel Pierre in Paris? Those are just brilliant. Like, you want to just eat yourself to death at Hotel Pierre. And That's have... kind of what he did, though. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's the only way we could build a time travel machine, right? Like, oh. you read about it. It's fun. And you go to a museum when they see, you, you see, like, silverware from sunken ship. Yeah, it's nice. But we'll never travel back in time, nor do I want to get polio, you know? There's great, <laughs> great benefits to living now and then, now and here, you but, know? The art but, of it. Yeah. And, and the, the beauty of it is like we've grown up watching like this old house, Victory Garden, all those shows on PBS, right? We're huge fans. And the beauty of this is we can build a restaurant like that with our hands. So we, we, it's just a matter of is it this year? Is it next year? You know? Well, yeah, we, we, we're doing it now, by the way. Yeah. Are you? Yeah, we bought, I bought a farm and he's going to read I bought a farm. I bought I bought Fred a farm for me. That's <laughs> <laughs> what the 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 gag is. Yeah. Where are you guys going to do it? I think down in St. Armand there I bought a little farm right on the Vermont border, but there's a summer kitchen part that has beautiful uh brick uh wood-burning oven situation and uh Big window, uh, an old factory wrought iron window. The room is just begging to have like three tables of four or three tables of four and a little stove and a zinc bar. And uh, I don't know. He's been cracking out. He's talking about going down there in January and starting to build it. This is the polar opposite of the theme restaurant in Vegas. TGIF. Uh, yeah. Well, not just that, but yeah. like the, the the celebrity chef, as you're going down the escalator at the airport, there's a giant billboard of this latest uh, chef. Did, did you ever hear this story about the Fertitta brothers? Well, no. So they, they called Fred one day and they said, uh, we're coming to Montreal. Uh, we'd love to uh, meet you guys. And we're like, yeah, okay. What's going on? You know, we're not open for How, what lunch. What year was this? That's just last year. Last year. When, after they sold, I think yeah. they, they bought the palms. They had all that cash just mm. burning a hole in their pocket. They're great guys, man. Like I love me. those guys. It's best. Okay, so wonderful. They, they get a hold of you. So they, they get a hold. Fly into privately to the to the airport, Montreal. Three Escalades roll into Joe Beef at noon on a Tuesday. Uh, all the boys get out. Uh, plus help and, you know, the, the crew that surrounds them. Assassins. We, yeah, we make a table at 10. We all sit down. Lorenzo starts off first. I'd like to let you guys know that Joe Beef is my favorite restaurant. And I'm like, what? You know, this dump? 
You're Lorenzo Fertitta. You go like all <laughs> over the world. You live in Las Vegas. Everything is at your beck and call. Like you live in the, you know. So that was flattering, you know. And we prepared a little dinner for them, a little lunch, and we talked. And they they pitched us to take over uh, one of the rooms in the Palms From upstairs. Top. And, uh, of course, it was flattering. We had a wonderful meeting, but we knew right away as we were having the meeting that that was not for us and it was never going to happen. We have young children. And, we're in a know. bad place, too, at the time. Like, it was tough in our life, you know, still drinking, still it's not. Yeah, it was pretty dark, yeah. but it was nice and flattering. Uh, and I think Fred moved them on to Mark Vetri, who eventually did the project from Philadelphia. And in retrospect, uh, yeah, it was nice, flattering, but we wouldn't do that. You know? Right. There's no way we couldn't do Joe Beef anywhere else. You know, people don't eat. People, the dining public doesn't exist unless unless it's on my street. So you know, Montreal is just such a different place. But they, the idea is like, when before they offered any uh, room there, I said, is there like a decommissioned laundromat in the back that's for employees only? That we like, said all like the wrong things, man. Eight hundred <laughs> square feet that we can make a five table French restaurant. They were you know? pitching us the top floor of the palms, and we're asking for the door next to the garbage container in the alley with no windows. And they were looking at us like we were insane. You wanted a five-table French restaurant. That's yeah. Li- yeah. And, and Lorenzo was looking that? at his brother, and his brother was looking at Lorenzo like, why the, why the fuck did you bring me here? here? <laughs> but you know, we sent them some books now. Well, I'm sure they're happy. Yeah. <laughs> It's just such a funny, funny way of responding to that. We want to give you the top floor of the Palms in Vegas. Do you have a, f- a fucking 800, 800 square foot room? And the back alley that yeah. nobody can access? <laughs> I want to make it so expensive that basketball players think it's too much money? Yeah. <laughs> well, that would be a very interesting spot. And I'm sure it would. If, if you did create something like that or someone did, an unbelievably exclusive spot, that literally has 20 seats available in a night, and they only open for one sitting. Right. The, and we want to build the, what's the, the movie? The Roxbury? No, the, <laughs> we want to build the French Connection uh, restaurant. No, the other one with J-Lo. What's that one? Revenge? Jiggly. Jiggly. Enough. <laughs> Enough. Ishtar. Made in Manhattan. Yeah, I mean, I guarantee if someone did do something like that, particularly because of Vegas, it's all about who you know and who you are. I mean, if you can get in. You know, you can get into Joe Lamb. Oh, it's Joe Lamb is in Vegas. It's, right behind the garbage container, the leaky one next yeah. to the grease trap. Yeah, girls in their Jimmy Choo's have to step in these puddles of grease. Oh, La Boutin. Oh, yeah, on their way to the back. Yeah. It, w- it would, ironically enough, it would be probably the hot spot in Vegas. I know, Joe. What, what, what Lorenzo didn't get it. Uh, Probably wouldn't be very profitable, though. I mean, it's right, not exactly. over. Obviously. Well, when they took over the Palms, I was excited. Um, I, I know that Nine Steakhouse there was excellent. I haven't been there in years, but that used to be a great place. But Mark, who's there, Mark Vetri's an excellent cook. Yeah, excellent. Great. He's really involved in like solid charity things. I think he's also brown or black belt in jujitsu. Really? From Philly. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. He's a yeah, Mark Vetri is a guy. resourceful dude. Wow. Yeah. So did he? Plays so guitar. he's. Is the restaurant open? Uh, I think this week it was this opening, week? or yeah. Oh wow! Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Wow. And his food is delicious. I'll like, try it out. Yeah. Yeah, Vetri's um, in Philadelphia is like an institution. We opened like uh, there was one thing when when we what was it? What was the story? Oh, the lobster spaghetti. 
You know, we took the kind of like there was a story in Bon Appetit magazine about love, uh, Mark, Mark Vetri doing lobster spaghetti and fighting with his dad about removing a table to put a meat slicer in. Had, we, we had read, I think they had 24 seats and he bought a nice red slicer and he said, we're taking out four seats and so now we're down to 20 seats. His, his dad thought he was insane. <laughs> and But he insisted that, you know, they have 20 seats instead of 24. We, that story was endearing to Fred and I. And he was doing a lobster spaghetti at his Philadelphia restaurant at the time. So when we opened Joe Beef, one of the first items on the menu was our version of the lobster spaghetti that Mark Vetri was doing. And just a simple homage to that story. That's great. Later, years later, we met him and we told him the story and became friends. That's amazing. So why did it take four seats? What did, what did this thing look like? Well, you know, have you seen those big Italian red Burkle uh, meat slicers? Uh, no. They're amazing. Burkle They're not electric. So did he do it just because it would add to the ambiance to have this cool thing? Yeah, there? in Italy, this is a pretty standard piece of equipment that you'd have on the bars and tavernas. It, uh, it turns slow. It's a big blade that mm -hmm. rotates slowly. It's very, very sharp. So it doesn't... It's uh, a pinwheel. Yeah, it doesn't melt the fat of the ham, right? So you don't get this white film. So it makes like perfectly thin, cool slices of perfect ham. And they're gorgeous objects. Like we yeah, have a couple yeah, yeah. now. We have a blue one and we have a red one they're gorgeous got one for me jamie yeah, I, was to, I was trying to find one like cutting meat that they were oh that one's nice <clears throat> oh wow yeah oh you know i saw one of these in italy yeah, yeah sure they're all over the place yeah when when i was in italy i saw one of these they were they were making sandwiches with it yeah but oh, that's wow. that's like a ten thousand, fifteen thousand dollar machine. Yeah. Wow. So when you when, when you remove four seats from your restaurant to put one of those in, you kind of like you know you're stepping up. You're on the wrong side of business. Joe, right? but you're in Maybe Joe B. Not. Points. You're on the right side of business. Um, you guys have something going on tonight, right? No, 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 no. no. We did last night. We cooked an animal last night, in Las Vegas. Was that, that was cool. Yeah, those guys are those great. Guys, awesome. And the people there? were. I've never been. Yeah, Weird. John and Vinny, man. Things. Yeah, they're good boys. They have John and Vinny's across the street. Animal is a restaurant that kind of opened around the same time. Joe Beef. We were friends from back then. Uh, they came up to Montreal a bunch of times. I brought them to all like the weird. We're all kindred spirits. It's like the same. Yeah, same thing. They, 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 they practice the restaurant business like we practice the restaurant business. The restaurant's so similar to ours in weird ways. And their relationship, John and Vinny, is like very Dave and Fred. It's strange. Like it's a LA so you Joe guys, Beef. You have these sort of connections with these fellow like minded chefs. All the pirates on Tony's Captain Tony's pirate ship, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, he was the one who introduced me to you guys. Yeah. He told me about you guys. Listen, uh, Joe Beef, <clears throat> surviving the apocalypse. Is it out now? Could people yes, buy sir. it now? Yeah. Uh, in a week. Twenty fourth. Twenty fourth. So November. I, I have it already, you fucks. Sorry, but you're going to have to wait. But please, go out, go buy it, support. And if you're in Montreal, go visit my best restaurant, Joe Beef. You guys are the shit. Thank, Thank you. you, Joe. Appreciate Thank you, you so much. Thank you very much. Very, very much. Thank you.